Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger. The outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Hello and welcome. Wait, 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 wait. I'm going to start. I'm going to start this again. Hello and welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moserkatz, along with my co host, Justin Ritchie. And today we have a very, very special guest, Stephen Keene, who is an economist. Hold on, Seth. Why are you talking that way? I don't know. Um, I was thinking about trying to get a job with the BBC. What do you think of my BBC voice? I, I think it sounds terrible, actually. That's <laughs> not what people on the BBC sound like. Oh, yeah, you know, it's okay. <laughs> it, it sounds like an American trying to pretend that they're on the BBC radio. Actually. Really? Yeah. Really? Uh, well, it's another career opportunity just lost to me. Yes, but that doesn't mean that we're not talking with Steve Keen today. Steve Keen is an economist, a professor, and one of the few people who are practicing economists who actually forecasted the economic crisis that the world is now experiencing and so that's why we're really excited to talk to him today about his book, Debunking Economics, which was released in its second edition. It is a fascinating look at why the way that economics is practiced, mainly in the policy realm, through the way it's taught in many economics departments, is completely out of touch with the way the world actually works. But a lot of the critiques that I've read about economics focuses on how they don't necessarily follow up with physical reality and don't follow the second law of thermodynamics. But this one's interesting because it actually uses the theories of economics and goes back through the history of the profession and looks at the ways that people who are actually upheld and honored by economists debunk their own theories later in their life. So it's just that the critiques that Steve Keen brings forward, a lot of them were actually put forward by economists who founded the field of modern economics as we know it today. It's just modern economics found ways to politely ignore all of the things that they found. Yeah, economics and economists are pretty good at ignoring a lot of inconsistencies in a lot of different things, you know, in the market, in uh, their theories themselves. And they just kind of wait for that invisible hand just to come up out of nowhere and make things right. Don't they, Justin? Yes. Well, with that being said, I'm going to use my visible hand to, to get this interview started. Thank God. <laughs> yeah, so we'll jump right in. Steve Keen, you're a professor at the University of Western Sydney and author of the book Debunking Economics. And thanks for joining us from Sydney, Australia today to talk about retooling economics education 
and general problems with economic thought in the world today. That's my uh, barrow, for sure. Good to be talking with you. So, Steve, what allowed you to foresee these current global financial crises all the way back in 2005? You have, have written about these things extensively. If I go right, right back, it's because I broke away from neoclassical economics right back in 1971 when I was an undergraduate student. That's a, a general background, but of course, many people do that. Most of them then drop out of economics, but a, a handful go on to become academic uh, economists like myself. And I'd say probably about 15% of the academic profession worldwide would be reject the dominant school of thought called neoclassical economics. So that's the general rubric I come from. The reason I specifically saw the crisis coming is I specialised in the work of Hyman Minsky. Uh, that puts me in a smaller band again, but a lot of post-Keynesian economists uh, in particular influenced by Minsky. The different thing I did was that I tried to put Minsky in a mathematical framework by using ideas from complexity theory. And out of that work, uh, first of all, I saw the importance of the level of private debt compared to GDP, which is one of the key indicators that Minsky himself focuses upon as a sign of a financial bubble and therefore a potential financial crisis after it bursts. Uh, but I also, working in complexity theory, I built uh, nonlinear dynamic models of Minsky's thesis. And one of the characteristics they had was the period of apparent stability would occur in key economic indicators from a neoclassical point of view, basically rate of inflation and the uh, level of employment. But in the background, there'd be a rising level of debt to GDP. Out of that tranquility, it finally we passed into a period of increasing volatility and finally a breakdown. So that was my, my expectations of what could happen. I checked the data back in 2005, uh, getting ready to write a, a book on the topic and also uh, doing an expert witness case for a, a group suing a predatory lender. And I then saw the debt to GDP ratio was literally growing exponentially. And I thought, holy hell, this you know, it was huge as well. Certainly the biggest it had been in the previous 40 years, given the data I had at the time. And I thought this has to turn around. When it does turn around, it'll be the biggest crisis certainly in the last 40 years, somebody has to raise the alarm, and at least in Australia, I'm that somebody. The basic punchline was focusing on the level of private debt compared to income from GDP and seeing that uh, hitting an exponential trend, which had to break. And when it did, we'd be in the biggest crisis since the Great Depression. Why didn't other people see this coming and question the rate of debt accumulation in the economy? And then also, if you could explain what you mean when you're talking about neoclassical economics, just in case some of our listeners aren't familiar with that term. Yeah, sure. Well, starting from that end, the neo neoclassical economists are what most people think is economics. So people who talk about supply and demand and the equilibrium this and equilibrium that, they are, and the ones you hear mainly on the, on the media, they are neoclassical economists. That's whether they know they are or they're not, because it's taught in such a way in most universities that people don't actually leave up without actually even realizing their alternative ways to think about how the economy operates. And they see the economy as fundamentally a system of barter between independent producers who produce a commodity they have in excess of, they want to trade that for ones they have a deficiency of, and the market economy is a way of linking these people together. And money is just, from that point of view, just an intermediary, money is unimportant. And they also ignore, not only ignore money, they also ignore the, the existence and role of banks. Believe it or not, for the people who haven't heard a person talking about economics before, that is the dominant strand and virtually every Nobel Prize winner, including people like Paul Krugman and most recently Thomas Sargent, come from that background. So they model the economy, mathematical models that presume the economy always tends towards equilibrium and doesn't need money and doesn't have banks in it. Now, of course, if you don't believe the system needs money and you don't believe banks matter, 
you're not even going to see a financial crisis coming. You're going to ignore the financial sector, which is fundamentally what they did. So when the financial crisis hit, the economists from that background, and that's really 85 to 90 percent of the profession, had no idea this was coming. So they were completely blindsided by an a priori argument that the level of money doesn't matter, what banks do in the economy doesn't matter. That rules out, 10, as I said, 90 percent of the profession. With the remaining 10%, quite a few of those people would have been aware of a crisis coming because alternative approaches to economics, so like those that emanate from the Austrian School of Economics with uh, Mises and Hayek and Rothbard being prominent thinkers there, one extreme, and then on the other extreme, people who call themselves post-Keynesian, who've uh, argued that Keynes was misinterpreted by conventional economists, and they therefore reject, for example, uh, Krugman's right to call himself a Keynesian uh, in a genuine sense. They call themselves post-Keynesians. They also focus on money because Keynes said money was important. They didn't quite work out how to model that technically. Then apart from that, even Marxists uh, also focus on the level of financial speculation. So the 10% the that's not mainstream would have people who would have been potentially worried about it. I'd say probably about a quarter of those so say 2.5% of the profession, was seriously worried about the crisis. That then comes out to the minority who then stick their neck up and say, hey, in the public, not just in the, in the academic circles, I think something really bad is happening. Uh, but then a tiny fraction of those have got the, the, the gall, the balls, whatever, to stick their neck out in public and say, I expect a crisis to come. And there was about 100 people who did that. And you're looking at the various surveys that have been done um, I ended up being, in terms of the academic, one of the most prominent. The people I, of course, publicly, the most well-known person to raise a warning was Nouriel Roubini. Then you also had Glenn Baker at the Centre for Economic Policy Research in Washington, and Petty Fours over in England, who wrote a book on debt back in 2000, led the, led the Debt Jubilee campaign back then. Uh, so there's a range of people who did. What they had in common, even though they came from very different schools of thought, one, for example, being Peter Schiff, who's very Austrian in his thinking, we all focused on the level of private debt. So you had the majority ignoring private debt. That's the mainstream neoclassicals. 10% uh, accepting private debt's important, um, but in various ways. So say 2.5% of the profession doing that. And then a handful, something like about 100, who started raising the warning and about a dozen who were particularly prominent and I'm one of that dozen. So outside of the economics profession, we've been in this financial crisis for a few years now, and I'm wondering if you are starting to see in the general public more of an awareness of the role of personal debt in the unsustainability of our current financial system. Oh, yeah. And individuals, uh, if, you're in, if you're in debt and you've, you've taken out of debt because you've basically expected to make a, a gain on rising house prices, then you're probably, in America, you're massively in debt right now. And the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning and before you go to sleep at night, the level of personal debt you're in and how can you reduce it? At a very visceral and personal level, the public knows private debt matters. In terms of how, how they consider the economy and how it's analysed, I think I can sense a growing level of exasperation when you hear public pronouncements by people like Bernanke and also Krugman saying the level of debt doesn't matter, private debt. They obsess about public debt. They actually try to assure people that the level of private debt has no macroeconomic impact. They're still arguing that even after the crisis occurred and after private debt started to fall, 
uh, they don't, don't even take the coincidence seriously that you know we've gone from a boom to a bust and uh, that, that's coincided with rising and then falling private debts. They, they still haven't gelled on that, even that empirical fact. The level of exasperation about economists is rising and I'm seeing more and more uh, you know, negative jokes about economists and so on, all of which I'm totally in favour of. What's your favourite economist joke? Oh, it was actually one that ended up having our, uh, our treasurer in Australia at the time, a guy called John Kieran, a very a lovely, uh, socially progressive, very warm human being as a prisoner of war survivor in the Second World War and it was just a lovely human being all around. And he was made treasurer for a short while and he made the mistake of telling a joke to the assembled economists in treasury that meant they were out to get rid of him, which they finally did. But he said, what is the definition of waste? The definition of waste was a bus full of economists going over a cliff with one empty seat. <laughs> That's pretty funny. So you've, you've talked a little bit about all this, these historical examples of you kind of stick, uh, being part of a group that has forecasted this crash. Could you talk a little bit about some of the historical examples that you've found of financial crises in the past? And then maybe also you can work that into what's actually happening right now in Europe, a mile up view so people who don't yeah. really know can kind of get a grasp yeah. of what's happening. Well, I'll start from the basic. We've had a, an approach to economics which ignores money, and that's madness. So I'm trying to develop an approach which, which takes money seriously. And if you ignore money, you'll argue that aggregate demand, the total spending of what spending people can spend, is aggregate supply. You only get a chance to buy if you sell something beforehand. That's the conventional way of thinking. But if you live in a credit-based economy, which we do, of course, Aggregate demand is not just your your capacity to demand goods and services is not just for limited to your income. You can also go and max out your credit card. And because the credit system can expand, so you can get additional debt being created without taking money off savers, total demand in the economy is the sum not just of income, it's income plus the change in debt. So that's the bottom line. That's that's the that's the core argument that I'm trying to get into economics that lets us understand where these crises come from. So the change in private debt adds to aggregate demand and it gets spent buying goods and services, paying for investment, but also paying for speculation on rising asset prices. And that's why these bubbles always both form and collapse. If you go back to the 1920s, the, the last great big bubble and boom we had, the level of private debt in America went from about 100 to 175% of GDP over that decade. And then asset prices crashed, as you know, the Wall Street crash. People, people stopped borrowing money to try to gamble on rising asset prices, and therefore they started to reduce their debt levels. And you had a period of falling debt and, but also, because people were uh, firms were mainly in debt back in those days, firms were cutting their prices to try to get customers in through their doors. So you had not just falling debt levels, you also had falling prices and falling output. And the output and prices fell faster than debt did, so the debt ratio actually rose from 175% of GDP to 235% in the first couple of years of the crisis. And then we had the Great Depression. I don't need to remind people too much about how horrific that experience was. So we've gone through exactly the same process again this time round, only with a higher level of debt. So back in uh, 1945, after the Second World War, the level of private debt in America was roughly 45% of GDP. It grew over the next 30 years to hitting about back to the same level as before the Great Depression, about by about 1987 with the stock market crash then. But then with the rescues that uh, Greenspan and friends put in, the financial sector survived each of those crashes and continued lending money until you got to the stage at the peak of the, um, the crisis when the level of private debt in America 
was 300% of GDP. That was in r- roughly in 2009. It's since then been paid down to 250%. So what we've now got is because aggregate demand is the sum of GDP plus the change in debt, all the way through from 1945 to 2008, roughly, aggregate demand exceeded incomes because debt was rising. Since 2008, aggregate demand has been below income because people are using the excess to pay their debt down. And that's why you're in an extended slump. And until such time as people have reduced their debt levels drastically from the current levels now of about, in America's case, 250% of GDP down to about 100% or below, you're going to have the tendency for demand in the economy to be less than the incomes being generated in the economy. And therefore, you'll have declining demand and a continued slump. But that's that's where we are right now. And it's crystal clear. It's very simple to understand when you look at the role of change in debt. If you don't, it's completely perplexing. And that's why people like Bernanke and Krugman still can't understand why the crisis is continuing. That's the exact dynamic that's playing out right now in in Europe, in the European financial crisis? That's actually, it's even worse because the Europeans uh, were even more insane than the Americans because they designed their financial system around neoclassical economic theory. So what's called the Maastricht Treaty right into the actual limitations on what the governments of Europe could do, the theoretical perspective of neoclassical economics. And that theoretical perspective, first of all, said that fiscal policy was a bad thing and that monetary policy should be in the hands of experts, not in the hands of politicians. And on top of that, when they formed a single currency, they also effectively told the countries of Europe that they couldn't compete with each other by adjusting their exchange rates. That meant you locked Germany and Greece into exactly the same exchange rate. If there was a trade imbalance between the two countries, Greece couldn't respond to it by devaluing the euro because it was the euro, it wasn't the drachma. So that locked them out of exchange rate policy. Then the rules of the Maastricht Treaty said a government couldn't run a deficit of more than 3% of GDP and couldn't accumulate a deficit of more than 60%. Now that's pretty much saying government's deficits are always and everywhere a bad thing. And if you actually, if you have a downturn in the economy, the government deficit necessarily rises because tax revenue falls and welfare payments rise. The Maastricht Treaty effectively said when that means your deficit exceeds 3% of GDP, you've got to cut spending. But rather than increasing spending when there's a downturn, or the, the gap rising and the deficit rising, you've got to actively reduce your spending at the same time as the economy is going down. So what you're saying is austerity was built in from the beginning. Yeah, yeah it was built into the Maastricht Treaty from the beginning. And so when I wrote the first edition of Debunking Economics back in 2000, I made the remark there, which I've now quoted, of course, in the second edition, that the Maastricht Treaty will guarantee that when a crisis hits the European economies, economies which will be desperately in need of a government stimulus will instead be forced into austerity. So it was predictable a decade ago that this would end in tears. Is there any positive aspects of forming this union? Why would countries like Greece and Spain agree to give up their currencies and join these other countries in, in the European Union? Mainly because it promised being part of a very large market. And the appeal uh, is always that if you get to a larger market, you can get economies of scale for what you're producing, you know, export uh, more of your gear overseas and everybody's supposed to benefit. That's the basic uh, mythology and methodology of, of, of trade unions, which are trying to basically reduce barriers between 
trading trading countries and the belief that the larger scale will result in gains for everybody. There's a minor amount of truth to it, but a major amount of fallacy as well. Uh, and it, I, that fallacy is so complicated that I didn't even address it in debunking economics. It had taken an entire book to go through why the theory of trade, conventional theory of trade is a load of nonsense. But that is what seduced politicians as well as as economists, the belief that the larger market would mean an increase in welfare for all. And uh, there's also you know, been a strong desire, given Europe's uh, very troubled political history, to bring about some form of union that means they work together rather than, rather than fighting each other. So there are reasons that go beyond the economic as to why they join together. So historically, Greece would have devalued their currency, and now they are tied to this greater European currency that they can't devalue. And so it looks like the only option forward is debt haircuts or default. And it looks like every single day, Greece gets closer and closer to default. And it's been this way for about a year now, where they're getting closer and closer to default. And then, oh, last minute, it looks like they're going to get bailout money. And who knows how much longer it's going to go on. But what would a Greek default actually look like? How do you think something like that would play out? Well, let's just one, one thing to clarify. The Greeks aren't getting this money. The banks lent to the Greeks are getting the money. Ah. <laughs> Okay. They say that you know, Greece has to have this money by X date. Well, it's got to have money by X date because the next state has got to pay Bank Y the money that, that that's signed up in the debt contracts. So when they talk about giving Greece the money, it's giving the, the, the banks that lent to Greece the money. The Greeks don't get to see the money at all. And an additional yeah. point of clarification, what does it mean that so many deposit outflows are occurring from Greek banks? Because people of Greece are just pulling their money from the banking system at, it seems like, an incredible rate. And what does that oh, do yeah. to the country's banking system? You've got a, a rule which is, is forcing Greeks to implode, forcing the economy to implode. The only sensible thing you'd do if you had money in Greece is get it out of there and put it in another currency's bank. So you've got the, the government taxation uh, being used to pay back the creditors, which is taking money massively out of circulation in Greece. You've got the austerity measures as well, reducing the amount of money in circulation. You've got cutting wages, reducing the amount of money in circulation there. Anybody with half a brain in Greece and any capacity to you know, transfer money from one country to another will get their money out of there, giving another reason. So what you've got is an is a absolutely accelerated economic collapse in the belief that economic collapse will make it easier to repay your debts. I mean, it just takes my breath away. This, this is the sort of thinking that's going on. But this is, again, classic neoclassical thinking. One reason that neoclassical economics appeals to people when they first hear it is it seems to make sense at the individual level. So if you've got a, a debt that's too much for you to handle on your current consumption level, what you do is you stop consuming. You reduce your consumption rate. Cool, that works fine because you don't get sacked because you're not consuming anymore. But if you do it collectively and everybody around you stops consuming, you get sacked because somebody else stopped consuming and your income goes down and you actually have a self-defeating process at the aggregate level. And that's what's actually Greece is being forced into here, self-defeating behaviour. What you really want to do is reduce the debt directly. You don't want to do it by trying to reduce your, the rate of turnover of your economy, which will reduce your income while leaving the outstanding debt at the same level. And what do the policymakers at the EU really think is going to be the outcome? I mean, there's no way of exactly knowing, but using their philosophy of neoclassical economics, they must have been thinking that they're directing Greece to an outcome that will help to either preserve the union or, or help the EU. What do you think they were expecting all along to happen in this scenario? 
Well, the dominant model in economic neoclassical economics right now is called Dynamic Stochastic General Equilibrium, DSGE. That's a really fancy name for an absolutely terribly small, tiny and, and mad model. And the mad model imagines the entire economy as a single consumer who own, owns a single firm in the economy, producing a single commodity, works in the firm and decides how much to produce based on their rational expectations about the future cost of the economy, where they know the future accurately. Now, I'm not joking. You can actually find Robert Solow, who's a Nobel Prize winner in neoclassical economics, absolutely stunned that anybody could take this model seriously. And when he made, made a description similar to the one that I've used and then finished with the punchline, I remember vividly, how could anyone expect a sensible short to medium term macroeconomic uh, model to come out of that setup? Nonetheless, that's the mindset they have. So in that model, what they think happens if you have government taxation, they say government taxation now, expectations of, of if a deficit occurs now, that leads the rational agent to expect that there'll be a future increase in tax payments. Therefore, that person will spend less now because of the government deficit. Conversely, they argue that the government runs a surplus. That person will therefore expect to have a drop in future tax charges on them, and they will therefore spend more. So they call this particular notion expansionary fiscal consolidation. And they actually believe that by the government running a surplus, private spending will rise. That's the model they've got. Sounds kind of backwards. Backwards, a compliment. <laughs> Retarded is closer to it. That's the thinking they have. And I first heard this being uh, argued when I spoke at a commercial conference some time ago when there's an American economist out there and he started talking about reverse Ricardian equivalence. Now, I knew what they meant by Ricardian equivalence. I hadn't heard this particular twist before, so I went and took a look at it. That was such a complicated term, they couldn't swing that even with policy advisors. Imagine a politician coming out saying, we know that through reverse Ricardian equivalence, this policy will work. So instead, they called it expansionary fiscal consolidation, which is about as almost as moronic, but not quite as, you know, impossible to sell to the public. So that's what they actually think is going to happen. Cut government spending, run a surplus, and the private sector will spend more and the economy will burn. Now, of course, that's completely ignoring the role of debt. And if you cut government spending, you take money out of the system, you slow down the rate of economic activity, economic activity will fall and people will lose their jobs. Their income will go down more than they manage to save and you'll have a higher debt crisis in the aftermath. It sounds to me like this is a problem that seems to crop up a lot on this show. It happens in government. It happens in economics. People have a really, really hard time thinking five years in advance, 10 years in advance. Down the road, it's really, it's really tough. It's right now, it's political campaign season in the United States. And if you ask a political campaigner, say like a Mitt Romney or one of these guys up here, what's going on in Greece, what's going on in Europe, they're going to say this is the result of social programs gone awry. The Greek citizen just needs to buckle down and work harder. Is this the fault of Greek citizens? Is the fault of people in Europe or is this something larger? Oh, it's something larger. I mean, again, your, your, very, your general point about being able to think down the track is very true. I actually put it differently. I'm sure you'll have sympathy for this. People can't think systemically. It's very simple for people to think in a very straightforward X causes Y way of thinking. What they can't handle is X causes changes in Y, which causes a feedback effect on X. Really, the, what are dominating human society right now, both ecologically and economically. And the in inability to think how uh, the feedback will apply is what makes us take short-term explanations for crises and then look for very, very simplistic explanations, which in fact turned out to be empirically false, but because they appeal to the short-term perspective, people accept them as true. So for example, the example of Greece, 
a recent study, I think by The Economist magazine, worked out that Greek work, the, the, the workers who work the longest hours in Europe are wait for it, the Greeks. The workers who work the shortest number of hours in Europe are, wait for it, the Germans. And the Germans have better holidays, et cetera, et cetera. There's certainly areas where the social security system in Greece is, is too generous compared to the productivity of the country. But on these, all these various comparisons where people expect, you know, Germany to be at the top of a list and Greece to be the bottom, it's actually the other way around. And what it really reflects is not the how hard the Greeks are working, but the calibre of the industrial technology they work with and the degree of innovation inside the society. And you've got the German economy, which has always been an innovative economy, massively industrialised, high quality technology and so on, specialised in that to compete with Asia. Uh, and the Greeks are relying upon tourism and agriculture. So it's, it's, it's built in that they couldn't compete with the Germans and they actually work harder than the Germans. There are more self-employed people in Greece than there are in Germany, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that short-term way of thinking doesn't stack up against the facts. And the tr tr problem I think we have in humanity in general is this inability to think in a system sense, which is why I regard the work of people like Forrester and Meadows and so on as so important. But I think we'll only learn about the necessity to think in a, in a systemic sense after we've been through several really huge systemic crises of which this financial crisis is only the first. We've had the theories behind neoclassical economics for quite a few decades now. And after World War II, why haven't we had another Great Depression like we did in the late 20s and 30s? And why are we only just now getting to one? Great question. That's actually the one that Minsky himself posed back in 1982. And he said, there's his, his book of essays, which I highly recommend people to read. It's a very readable book. And if you only manage to read one of the essays in there, you'll know far more about economics than uh, trying to slog through any textbook on the subject. And he had the title of the, of the essay series, the, the set of essays is called Can It Happen Again? The pivotal essay says, you know, can it happen again, meaning a Great Depression? And if it can happen, why hasn't it happened since, the, since 1945, when he's writing in 1982? So there had to be something about the institutional arrangements post the Second World War and the economic circumstances that explain why it didn't happen. Now, the reason it obviously can happen again, because I think we really are in a depression. It's a joke to call this a recession. And secondly, the, the reason it didn't happen beforehand is because after the crisis of the 1930s and 40s, the level of private debt in America was driven down from its peak level of 235% of GDP down to 45% of GDP by the end of the Second World War. So you began with an incredibly low level of debt, probably actually lower than America needs in a sustainable sense. And the financial sector had a debt-to-GDP ratio of a mere 2%. So you had business debt, I'm only guessing here proportion, but business debt would have been roughly 30% of GDP, household debt would have been something like 12% of GDP, and finance sector debt was about 2% of GDP. So you had very little debt, uh, paying, the, paying the credit card was no problem, didn't exist of course, but paying your debts was quite straightforward and all the profits earned by American industry could go towards industrial development and the great technological advances of the 50s and 60s. But because you could still gamble on rising asset prices, that's something that hadn't been banned by the Glass-Steagall Act, people got into share market speculation, we then had a series of share market bubbles and bursts. The first big burst actually was in 1966, most people don't realise that, but that was the first big stock market bubble and burst. Then a decline until 82, still with rising debt levels. So by the time we got to about 1982, I'm pretty, I think from memory, I'm not looking at my data right now, but I think the debt ratio had cracked through 100% by then. By the end of 1988, 
you'd hit almost 170% of uh, debtors' GDP. And then we had the financial crisis of 1987 with the stock market falling 20% in one day. Alan Greenspan dives to the rescue. The financial sector that should have failed at the time or financial institutions that should have failed rescued and didn't go under. So they went looking for somebody else to lend the money to. Then we had the, the savings and loans fiasco. That collapses into the recession of the 1990s. They get rescued out of that again. Though Bill Black did a lot of good job in prosecuting some of those people and putting them behind bars. Then you had the uh, growth of long-term capital management type behaviour, the growth of the hedge funds, debt levels now cracking, uh, cracking to 100% of GDP. Then you had the stock market bubble of the dot-com, the collapse of the dot-com, another rescue comes in, the financial market looked for somebody else to lend to, they're already lending to the household sector at that stage, household lending takes off, the subprime, you crack 300% of GDP, then you have a crisis because you simply couldn't find, there's no way to rescue out of that situation and there was nobody less to lend to because the entire American economy was saturated with debt. To give you rough figures at the time, household debt had gone from something that would have 10 to 15% of GDP back in 1945 to about 100% of GDP. Business sector debt had gone from something in the order of 30% to 70%, which though that's less than they had back in the Great Depression. Financial sector debt had gone from 2% to 120% of GDP. Now, if the financial sector itself is that much in debt, if the household sector owes four times as much as it during the Great Depression and six times as much as it did back in the 1940s. And the business sector is carrying as much debt as in the middle of the 1920s. There's nobody else to lend to. So the whole house of cards finally fell over when we reached that point of no return. So the reason this can't go on like the financial crises of, say, 1982 or other stock market crashes is because banks cannot find anyone else who can take on additional debt. Fundamentally, yeah. The only reason people take on excessive debt is because they expect a, a rise, to make a profit out of rising asset markets. So they, they take a leverage position. And I, I give a bit of an analogy here, which it seems to get through to people. Imagine going to the dentist with a sore tooth. You're only going to get that one sore tooth pulled. Getting a tooth pulled is not a pleasant experience. Going to the dentist is not a pleasant experience. What did the dentist persuade you? You look sexy with less teeth <laughs> rather than getting the one rotten wow. pulled. Well, yeah, they're sexy with less teeth. Don't you look great? The girls will love you. Um, <laughs> well, that's similar to debt because banks, they look, you know, debt's really ugly. Debt's awful. You don't like being in debt. You've got to pay, buy, pay somebody else before you can pay the bills. But debt can be good if you borrow the money, buy an asset, and if the asset goes up by 10% in value, you double your money. So leverage is good. And that's what persuades us to take on more debt than is sustainable. You can get a very easy comparison of this if you look at the level of household debt and break it down into personal debt, which is mainly directed at consumption, and mortgage debt, which is directed, of course, at buying houses. Now, that could be houses to live in, but of course, it became houses to flip that house and make a profit out of. Well, back in 1990, I think the level of mortgage debt to GDP in America was about 40% of GDP, and personal debt was about 10%. Fast forward to 2008 or so, and personal debt was still about 10% of GDP, but mortgage debt had doubled because people thought they'd make a gain out of you know the flip that house mentality. So is it more because we've run out of markets to saturate with debt? Are we just looking for the next market to saturate? Do we need to go out, to, out into space and find aliens to lend money to? Is that what we're looking for? That, would that get us out of this problem? That, that's the best reason for a moonshot and going to maybe we'll find somebody on the moon we can, we can lend money to. They've run out of potential lending targets in the rest of the world. 
you know, lending money is a two-sided activity. The banks have to be willing to lend, but they have to be willing borrowers as well. As I said, borrowers only take on money relative to income at a responsible scale. They become irresponsible and able to, to, to fall for the line that borrowing money is a good thing when they see asset uh, price growth. So it isn't just that you run out of people to lend to. It's also you should drive asset prices to such a level that people finally just don't think it's even feasible to enter into the market. So that happened with both stock market prices and house prices. And then, of course, when you, when you get them driven to the levels they were driven to, and the bubbles in the stock market and in housing are the biggest in history as well, when they start to unwind, that becomes an encouragement to get out of debt. So you have a positive feedback process between rising debt and rising asset prices that gives you a bubble in both debt and asset prices. But then unless you can restore the debt rising, which hasn't happened this time around, the falling asset prices actually encourage people to get out of debt and you go from a boom to a bust. And that's the situation we're in now and it could last 15 years. Struggling with money has proven to be an unbearable burden for a Greek pensioner who shot himself dead in a square in the center of the capital. It's just one of a string of suicides across the EU caused by financial desperation and the continuing harsh austerity measures. Well, on the bigger picture, it is a symbol of that desperation on the street of the ordinary people across the EU who is suffering from all the austerity cuts and the financial difficulties that their countries uh, are going through at the moment. Now, this 77-year-old man, before shooting himself in front of parliament uh, in Athens, had said that he would be leaving so as not to leave debt with his children. And this is a sentiment that is echoed by a lot of people. Uh, they may be suffering uh, silently or they may not be protesting out on the street or, or, or killing themselves, but it is certainly a sentiment that is reflected across the EU. And it's not just in Greece. This country is seeing a rise in the suicide rates, but also in Italy, uh, there have been a string of recent uh, suicides directly linked to their financial problems. Uh, we've seen a 78-year-old woman who threw herself uh, off of the balcony of her third floor flat, and she said um, that this was because, she had said before that, that this was because of the cuts in her pension. This was the reason uh, that her son um, had given to those who had been asked and this, again, the, the interesting thing, thing here is these suicides are directly linked to the financial crisis. And this is a message that they're trying to get their leaders to understand, those who are, trying, who are making these decisions for them. With the odds so stacked against them, some desperate Greeks even contemplate ending it all. And this is the only phone line in the country that's dedicated to stopping them. Line 1018 is Greece's single volunteer-run charity suicide prevention line. In 2011, calls here doubled. Calls like one that Elena picked up from a mother standing on the fifth floor of a building threatening to jump. She had a family member, a child, with uh, it was handicapped and uh, received a benefit. And this benefit, benefit was about to be cut and she was about to lose her job 
And she said, there's nothing I can do. What can I do to help my child? What can I do to help myself? It's a dead end. I don't want to suffer anymore. The charity, too, is short of money. Its volunteers unsure of their future. Although many Greeks grudgingly accept the need for austerity, they're adamant that MPs should combine compassion with the cuts. The main problem now is to find a new strategy, because this one is not working. It's like killing people. It's like suicidal for the economy, the market and the households. I mean, throughout this whole thing, we've always talked, haven't we, about hard cash, fiscal policy, the big story, the big picture and what's going wrong or, or, or what's not going right about it. And we often don't think about mums, dads, loved ones, grandfathers, grandmums who are going through these awful problems day by day. This particular pensioner who committed suicide today left a note saying, as we've been reporting, that he refused to scrounge for food in the rubbish. Now, how reflective is his situation of most of the rest of the people in our country? How many other people are going through this awful, awful predicament now? This is a ghastly situation because of the whims of imbecilic, economically incontinent politicians who believe and listen to equally incontinent and disorganised bankers who borrowed too much money, who beggared the entire nations, they are now effectively seeing their own people forced to kill themselves in order to avoid poverty. And that is an absolutely ghastly situation. And unfortunately, everybody, quite simply within Greek politics, and a huge number of the politicians within the European Union, must stand accused of effectively leaving their citizens to starve to death. Wander down to Volos Market and there's one thing you won't need in your pocket. Money. From handicrafts to food, everything here is for sale through TEM, a new alternative currency. Locals build up credit by offering goods or services. The value is recorded in a central computer network, allowing them to spend their TEM on whatever they choose, however exotic. A traditional bartering system returning to today's Greece. This period, it's not easy with money to exchange money. So it's, it's great to exchange with uh, my, what I can offer. We have reached the bottom of, of our lives. Now where, where we want uh, to think uh, uh, in a different way. Since it began, this network has built up over 800 members and it's growing every day. A grassroots initiative for people now struggling to afford things with euros. And it's spawned other bartering and exchange systems around the country as Greeks look for new ways to beat the financial crisis. Art is the latest victim of the EU's debt crisis. A director of an Italian museum is burning works from around the world in protest at the government's harsh austerity measures. Now, with the permission of the artists, he's promised to destroy three pieces a week until the government listens. Well, the museum director who started burning artwork, he's calling this the art war. Basically, it's a symbolic protest against the way that the economic crisis, the European debt crisis is being handled. Well, what can the government do about it, though, with the best intentions in the world? Do they have any other crisis? remedy other than these austerity measures they're now committed to to keeping the money coming in oh look this is absolutely ridiculous state of affairs the greek government is bankrupt the greek government cannot afford to stay in the euro and pay its debts it must default Ultimately, that may be a terrible problem for a great many financiers and investors, but at the same time, I have to say, 
any bank that bought Greek debt in the course of the last 10 years was stupid. So making that absolutely clear, the simple fact is Greece must default on its debt now. It probably needs to leave the euro immediately. It must deflate its currency. It is going to still have many problems. But the truth of the matter is that when you do get to this sort of extreme, only this sort of extreme measure is going to be possible to resolve your situation. And ultimately, it really beggars belief that we have a Greek politician the most highly paid politicians in the whole of the European Union turning round and going, oh, well, that's very sad. One of our constituents killed themselves when they themselves make 15,000 euros per month without any difficulty whatsoever as a backbench MP, which is enough to manage to pay for dozens of pensioners every month in new austerity Greece. Problem is, of course, not just in Greece. This suicide we've seen today, just yesterday, there was an elderly Italian woman who leapt to her death. And why can't these people indeed see a way out other than this drastic measure? Volos is suffering like many Greek cities, industry collapsing and unemployment soaring. The alternative currency has re-energized a community searching for a glimmer of hope. This is one of the local businesses now using the network, a cooperative which sells plants through TEM, giving fresh opportunities to the workers. We can buy bread and meat in exchange for our products, she says, and the girls can go to the hairdresser. I grew up in a village. This was how it used to work in the old days before money was involved. The next generation is benefiting too. Parents who can no longer afford these workshops for their children can now pay in part with TEM. The euro may not be forced out here, but there is now an alternative on which many are depending. A simple idea giving this community fresh optimism. A rare hint of colour amidst the darkness of the financial crisis. listening to the extra environmentalist so we've been talking for a while now about saturating markets full of debt and people in general just getting so much debt on them that they just can't find the next market to invest in it just seems like it's just going to overwhelm them so they try to pay off their debt what happens in this situation what is going to happen a year from now when everyone can't get out of this debt what's the system going to look like what's it going to do what it really means is a, an actual normal part of aggregate demand for capitalism won't be there so if you think about uh, where demand comes from to buy the commodities, we live in a demand-driven economy. Part of that demand comes from your income, your wages and profits from working in factories and firms and so on. But part also comes from the change in debt. And Schumpeter put the argument best uh, back in the 1930s that investment is fundamentally financed by rising debt levels. They said you can actually potentially you can finance investment by somebody foregoing consumption and buying shares instead. But he said the real source, the, the net source of rising investment is rising bank debt. Now, when you have a downturn like this caused by excessive debt levels, that particular source of investment disappears. So you, know, you only have a, a tiny amount of investment being undertaken by people deciding to buy shares rather than consuming. But you don't get the growth in investment coming out of growing bank debt, which finances productive investment. 
So in that situation, your economy grows more slowly, innovation slows down. Uh, one instance we know well historically, of course, is the television was invented in the 1920s and only became a consumer product in the late 1940s because the depression intervened before it could be sold. So in that particular case, innovation was slowed down by two decades by depression. So we'll see a similar thing here. And what that means is you'll have a slower rate of growth than the economy would normally achieve. And in that, therefore, means you're likely to have very persistent high unemployment and also people being depressed further by falling asset prices, which, of course, is what's been happening in Japan now for two decades. So slow growth, not necessarily uh, declining output, but certainly slow growth and a tendency for any recovery to give way very rapidly to a downturn again. What does this mean for someone who's listening and for the people who live around them, their neighbors? Does this mean that eventually everyone's just going to go bankrupt around them and then their nation's going to go bankrupt? Is it likely that all of these nations that have taken on all this debt slowly default one at a time? Or do you think there's uh, chains and cascades of default? What what does a debt deflation actually look like as yeah. it plays well, out? It, it can finally stabilize when you pay the debt level down because you have a period of depressed economic activity, people paying their debt down. And so long as GDP isn't falling faster than debt, which is what happened in the first two years of the Great Depression, that debt ratio is slowly falling. And as it falls, of course, the, the negative impact of a reduction in debt actually falls as the debt level itself falls compared to income. So it does have a tendency ultimately to stabilise when you get back down to the stage where most of the speculative debt has been eliminated out of the system. Uh, I, I divide debt into two types, productive investment, which I call Schumpeterian debt, and Ponzi investment, which I call Ponzi debt. Because that's, that's the, the second one is the one that really causes the trouble. You eliminate the overhang over a period of you know, decades, and when you've finally done it, then debt's down to a low level again, and people can borrow money to invest, and you, you can have a restoration of growth. So that's, that's the long-term perspective. But, of course, in the short term, we're likely to see booms and cascades coming out of the, the whole process just by accelerating and decelerating rates of change in the reduction of debt. And on top of that, with governments imposing austerity measures which are counterproductive, then you're going to see political collapses occurring where there shouldn't be, uh, shouldn't, where there wasn't a necessity for an economic collapse. An economic downturn caused by austerity will cause a political collapse, and that will just add more chaos to the whole system. So it, we shouldn't forget that the Great Depression gave rise to Hitler. I hope we won't see anything quite as bad as that, and I think we'll see, we can't see a third world war coming along either. But we can certainly see a rise in, in demagoguery and political revolt and overthrow of systems which are putting people in austerity and penury. A disillusionment with the social structure, that will certainly happen as well. I remember seeing all these images of the European financial crisis from the 30s, and there were Germans wheeling around wheelbarrows full of cash because they had to take their daily wages down to buy the bread before they had to take two wheelbarrows the next day. And maybe that's an exaggeration, but those are a lot of the images that people have in their mind of what it was like during that time. And is that what's going to happen? Are people going to have to take their wages down to the store and buy stuff before they have to bring several wheelbarrows full of currency? Or is it something different? It's very, very different because you're talking about the Weimar Republic period which post the First World War. And that was hyperinflation. Uh, what we're in is a deflation. So what actually happens is rather than cash losing value overnight, which is what happened during the Weimar Republic period and like happened, happened in Zimbabwe recently, you have money actually gaining in value over time because prices are falling. The better analogy by far is to look at what's happening in Japan 
where inflation has either been zero or negative for most of the last two decades. So anybody in cash has actually had like a positive rate of interest simply on holding cash. And that, of course, encourages you not to spend. So it slows down the rate of consumption to some degree. So that's more the situation. It's not inflation that's the worry. Uh, it's deflation. If we're going to see inflation, it'll come from impacts from the climate at some point and clear peak oil, not from the financial sector. You mentioned the rise of Hitler as a direct result of these changing economic patterns and political destabilization around the world. Do we see a different kind of political structure moving forward? Does the world restructure itself differently post-capitalism? Is capitalism going away and what could replace it? I'm somebody, even though like my politics is a progressive, my attitude to economics is I want to describe the capitalist system rather than predict its demise. Um, so I have my, my views about where it, it might uh, move ultimately. But I think uh, you're far, I'm far better trying to describe how capitalism actually functions because we simply don't understand that properly enough to begin with. Uh, but certainly, I don't see capitalism uh, disappearing courtesy of this crisis. If this crisis was the only thing happening, then we'd have political turmoil uh, like we had in the Great Depression. But we'd have a revival of capitalism on the other side. I mean, maybe with, with reforms that make it less volatile, or maybe with reforms that ultimately erode like the Glass-Steagall Act eroded in America after the last Great Depression. To me, this issue isn't about the sustainability of capitalism. If capitalism is going to face any real challenge about its long-term survival, that's going to come out of peak oil and global warming rather than the financial crisis. Our, our world using this capitalist system requires this investment to keep all of these cogs of production going. And what happens if suddenly there's a major shift in the expectation for profits from individual investors and suddenly a lot of people start seeing at once that the short term and potentially the long term are major losses on investments. Do you think it's possible that production could just stop rapidly within you know, a few months time or a year's time? Not a, not in a matter of months, but yes, that is what happens. And that's what we saw back in 2008, 2009, a sudden reversal. So you can certainly get that happening. Uh, but that process has already begun. It began back in 2008. And I'll get a bit slightly technical here to explain what, what's going on. Uh, this, this is simplifying the situation. There are feedbacks that I'm not taking into account in this argument. Because I argue that aggregate demand is the sum of income plus the change in debt, that is then spent buying goods and services and buying existing financial assets. So there's a link between the change in debt and the level of economic activity and also the level of asset prices. If you look at the change in GDP, whether the economy is growing or falling, that's then going to be the change in income plus the acceleration of debt. So to have rising economic activity, partly debt financed, and to have rising asset prices, very largely debt financed, you've got to have not just rising debt, but accelerating debt. So when you get a downturn like we've gone into now, you go from massive acceleration of debt, which was happening all through the 2000 period, to massive deceleration, almost twice as fast the rate of deceleration of debt this time around is in the Great Depression. But then when your debt's now being reduced, you can actually occasionally have accelerating debt just when the rate of reduction of debt slows down a bit. That's actually accelerating debt. So you get ups and downs coming out of the whole thing. So when, it, when, the, when the slump first hits, as we saw back in 2008, there's a sudden collapse in employment, collapse in output, and a collapse in share markets, and, uh, and obviously house prices too. But then once that's set in train, when you're on the downward slope all the way, you're going to have variations in that rate of downturn that occasionally give you rates of acceleration. So you won't necessarily see a collapse again as severe as the one at the actual turning point, which is back in 2008. 
However, in countries like Europe, where they're imposing austerity, then you could have that downturn occurring there. And of course, I'm using America as my data point in all this analysis. So I'm looking to get America's level of private debt. To me, the worst example of private debt on the planet quite probably is England. And England, England had the same level of private debt as America back in 1987, roughly about 200% of GDP. America went to 300% of GDP. England went to 450% of GDP. America's clearly reversed. It's gone from 300% to 250% over the last two years. England has bounced around. They've fallen debt, rise in debt, fallen debt, rise in debt. So the, the t overall tendency to, de to um, deleveraging hasn't set in in England as yet, but it appears to be starting now at the same time as the government there is imposing austerity. You put the two together, it's quite likely the hot money in England could run out of that country at any stage. And when it does, then England will have a credit crunch that will make America look modest. So that could give you a very sudden downturn in that particular economy. Of course, the other one they have to look at as well, and I don't know the data for China at all. Well, I don't think I'd trust the Chinese data if I could get it anyway. The, the implications are very strong that China's also managed to delay the, the impact of the crisis on itself back in 2008 by starting its own bubbles, particularly in housing. And if that bubble bursts again, then there could also be a shock uh, coming out of that for production. We think only really about the Western world uh, having all these crises, but we have these emerging worlds like China and India coming online where they're going to be demanding the same kind of resources as, you know, United States or Europe in the next 10, 15 years. That's going to add some crazy variables to this whole situation, isn't it? Again, I think China has more potential, I think, to cope with a crisis that, of course, like this than the West does. Uh, the fact that you can be quite ruthless as a Chinese government is thing in its favour for reversing direction when a crisis hits. But at the same time, I, I think my expectations in China have always been an ecological crisis will hit it first because, you know, the country of 1.4 billion people and the pressure that the rate of economic growth has put upon China and the absolute, almost ignoring the environmental impacts, at some point there'll be something serious as an environmental impact and the Chinese will change direction on a dime at that point and go for ecological preservation rather than economic growth. And they won't care about the consequences that has for the economies of the rest of the world. So my expectations have always been more to expect an ecological reversal coming out of China rather than an economic one. But at the same time, uh, people I trust, people like Hugh Hendry and so on in the England are making a fairly strong case that China's in a, a real estate bubble that will burst at some stage and bring that economy uh, you know, if not to a halt, drastically slow down its rate of growth and therefore have, have feedback effects on the rest of the world, especially including my home country, of course. So you mentioned peak oil and climate change a little while ago, and some of the potential impacts of both of those trends is in resource shortages. And I'm wondering how neoclassical economics views resource shortages and how we could expect economies to react that are based on neoclassical models as resource shortages come along. Well, the main danger here is that the main thing that peak oil, the oil has given us over the last century is incredibly cheap energy. I sit outside conventional economic theory and see energy as a, a really the, the productive force in our economies and where our technology transforms energy more effectively over time. But now we've got a, a rapid decline in the cheapest source of energy we've ever had. And back in the, when oil began being exploited, for every you know, unit of energy you put into getting it out, you got 100 back. Uh, once we hit peak oil, we're, we're going to the stage where we might be getting, you know, for every one in, we get 20 back. And as that continues, at some stage, you're going to get to the stage where there's zero return, which is when it won't be worth mining the oil, no matter what price you can get when you try to sell it on the market. So that 
then undercuts a large part of the productivity of capitalism. And that means that the mass consumption society we've generated can't continue. And yet we're doing nothing as yet on any sustainable sense to try to reverse that, nor is it possible to get as much of a free lunch for energy as oil gave us. Those challenges are likely to be, as I say, far more severe for capitalism when they set in than the financial crisis is proving to be. And it's doing a pretty bad job of reacting to the financial crisis. How is it that mainstream economics views risk? What implications does that have for what's happening right now with their current financial crisis? Well, they're thinking about risk is that it's just probability. They have really cheated on the whole idea of what risk actually is to people in, a, in an uncertain world. Risk is uncertainty about the future, and uncertainty is what matters. And you can't use probability to predict the future. But fundamentally, that's what they've done. And they've completely ignored issues of growth. This is the bizarre thing. People think they're obsessed with growth, neoclassical economists. No, they're not. They're obsessed with equilibrium. And if you think of equilibrium, you can't see any problems coming out of growth. Because if you're growing in equilibrium, what's the problem? So it's their equilibrium fixation that means they've ignored where growth comes from. And that's why I think they'll be surprised and unable to cope when growth starts to slow down, not just because of the financial crisis, which they already have a hard time understanding, but because we start having ecological limits on the rate of growth. And that's where the, the, the work of Meadows and Cohen producing limits to growth was so important back in the 1970s. But the most important group for denigrating the work of Meadows and saying don't take them seriously were economists. Well, that's probably because they make a lot of their living on dealing with these issues, right? No, no, it's, it's, it's some part that some part that's true, but mainly they're naive about it. Because you don't even consider growth as a as an issue, you think you get the system in equilibrium, it, it'll grow at, a, at its natural rate. That's the way they think. They actually talk about the maximum rate of growth the economy can sustain as the natural rate of growth, which is bizarre. It's like saying the natural speed of your car is 150 miles an hour. Anybody who drove at that speed would soon be dead. And they don't even consider that there can be limits to how fast that growth can be sustained. It's that ignorance rather than uh, self-interest that leads to them ignoring those issues. Yeah, that's true. All right. So, Steve, if one of our listeners has read your book, has listened to you talk, has listened to this interview, how do we move forward from these ingrained social norms that have just ruined our society and our economy in so many different ways. Is there a way that we can move past these ingrained traditions and cultural norms into something that's new and different? Is there a way we can fix our, our economy or do we have to start from scratch somewhere else? I think we can't start from scratch. There is no such place as scratch. You've got to start from where you are. Um, so starting where you are, the first thing I'd be in favour of is what I'm calling a modern debt jubilee, which is a, a policy to reduce the level of debt directly without reducing people's income and capacity to spend. One way to, to categorise that would be what we call a quantitative easing for the public. So rather than all the quantitative easing has given money to the banks and said to the banks, please lend money, which the banks haven't lent for obvious reasons, instead give the quantitative easing to the public and say to anybody who receives the money, uh, if you are in debt, you must reduce your debt. But if you aren't in debt, here's cash. The impact of that would be to drastically reduce the income and power of the financial sector because they make money out of debt, not out of cash. It wouldn't make them insolvent, but it would reduce the liquidity substantially and reduce their income levels. Anybody who was in debt would have less debt encumbering them so they could spend more easily. Anybody who had no debt but actually owned assets that generated income from debt and having bought bonds from the banks would get less income from those bonds, but they'd have a cash stack to make up for it. So the modern debt jubilee, I think, is a way of quickly reversing the damage that's been done by the financial sector. 
But then to go forward from there, we have to reverse our thinking about the economy quite dramatically because if that did happen, you'd suddenly have all these unemployed financial people who are actually doing less than useful stuff right now, but you'd have no factories to employ them in because all the factories have been shipped offshore to China. So you have to rebuild American industry to to get out of that particular hole. And you have to think again about how the economy operates. And I actually restudy economic education by starting from the second law of thermodynamics, build a new economics, which is respectful of the fact that we live in a, a physical world. And really the, the limit that we can actually produce on this planet relates to the extent to which we increase the entropy in the planet. And that's what's been the source of global warming and, and uh, of course, eliminating accumulated uh, stocks like oil as well. So we'd have to change our thinking and think systemically about uh, not just the global economy, but the global ecology as well. But I'm quite sceptical about our potential to do that without a crisis first. Again, you made a comment about short-term thinking. I see that as being a manifestation of people's inability to think systemically until after the systemic crisis that Cassandra's like myself have predicted actually ends up happening. So I think we'll, we'll do this, but only after we go through not just an economic crisis, but also an ecological one. How realistic do you think it is that a country is going to actually pull off a debt jubilee? And, and what would that mean? Would it mean I would go to my mailbox and I'd have an envelope in it and it would have a check from the government saying, here's quantitative easing three, except it went to you instead of Bank of America? Not quite that. But the, it, it, I don't think there's any chance within the next five or 10 years. But I think after, after a decade or so, what we're going through now, it'll be taken more seriously. I was actually, I, I didn't intend talking about this until I wrote my next book, which I planned to publish by about 2014. I was actually, in, in a sense, ambushed in a question in Ireland when I was there last year in front of a quite conservative audience. And I then really had to say what I thought about the idea of a debt jubilee. And much to my amazement, the idea was taken seriously because Ireland has an unemployment rate of 14%. That's recorded rate. It's bound to be higher than that. They're, they're in a serious case of despair. And once you're in despair about the situation you're in, you're willing to consider ideas you might otherwise think were radical. So I think at some stage it could happen, but it will take five or 10 more years of this crisis. And I'm quite confident the crisis will last that long, uh, certainly given what politicians are currently doing about it, which is probably making it worse. In terms of how it would operate, it wouldn't be a check in the mail. It'd be a payment to your bank and your bank would be receive an injection from the government and be told, you know, if, uh, you know, if Justin Ritchie has a debt of $100,000, here's a payment of $80,000. Justin now has a debt of $20,000. And if Seth had uh, uh, no debt at all, he'd have $100,000, uh, which would compensate him for the fact that the bonds he'd bought off the bank, which would be reduced in value because the whole process would reduce those debts down absolutely. Um, he'd get less income out of those big bonds. His income might drop by a factor of four, but he'd have $100,000 in cash he could spend out of. So it sounds like that would help on a personal level, but wouldn't that just accumulate to government debts even more? I mean, if this happened in the United States, wouldn't it just increase the level of debt so soon that they have uh, you know, $25 trillion in debt on the national deficit? Well, to getting things in perspective, the government debt is one quarter the level of private debt. And before the crisis began, it was one sixth the level of private debt. It's private debt that caused this crisis, not government debt. And sometimes when you had a mistake, uh, you've got to do something which it looks like the wrong idea to get out of the mistake. And my favorite example here is if you're driving a car around a corner and you're doing it too quickly, the response of an amateur driver is to turn the wheel further into the curve. 
Of course, a professional knows you turn the car, the wheel in the opposite direction into the slide to control the slide. Now, I'm an amateur. Put me around a corner too quickly, I'll have an accident and it comes to a car. But economically, what I'm saying is that we've done the wrong thing by letting private debt rise too much. The only solution is to let private, public debt rise to compensate, but do it in such a way that reduces the private debt directly. And then after that, we can get out of the crisis. Again, to go back to the end of the First Second World War, when the level of private debt was paid down to 45% of GDP, the government debt level was almost 150% of GDP. That debt had paid for the Second World War. If you hadn't borrowed the money, you'd be saying Heil Hitler to each other. It played a very functional, very important functional role, but it was ultimately reduced down to the stage of being only about 30% of GDP as the American economy burned through the next 50 or 60 years. So public debt can be reduced and public debt doesn't have the same impact upon the economy as private debt. There's a a good argument in favour of governments running deficits as a matter of course most of the time for the same reason there's a good argument for bank lending money most of the time because both are ways of creating money into the economy. We have both private money and public money creation systems and one of the reasons we're in this totally imbalanced state now is that the private sector's debt uh, debt creation of money won't run rampant well, the government was trying to restrict its creation of money. So we went from a situation back in 1960 when roughly 20% of money was government created and 80% was private debt created to now where it's 3% government and 97% private debt. We have to reduce that balance back again. So for a while, a government deficit is necessary to get out of this crisis. in the middle of Washington, D.C. brings an added benefit to George Washington University. When the head of the Federal Reserve decides he'd like to be a guest lecturer, being just a few blocks away is a big help. Former Stanford and Princeton professor Ben Bernanke told students how the Federal Reserve has evolved over the past century, providing a backstop to the financial system during the most recent financial crisis. To address financial stability concerns, and for reasons I'll explain, one thing that central banks can do is make short-term loans to financial institutions. Um, As I'll explain, uh, providing short-term credit to financial institutions during a period of panic or or crisis can help calm the market, can help stabilize those institutions, and can help mitigate or bring to an end a financial crisis. The group of about 30 students attended the lecture by Chairman Bernanke. He's the first sitting Fed chief ever to help teach a college course. What do central banks do? What is their mission? The first is to try to achieve macroeconomic stability. And by that, I generally mean stable growth in the economy, avoiding big swings, recessions, and and the like, uh, and keeping inflation low and stable. So that's the economic function of a central bank. The other function of central banks, which is going to get a lot of attention, obviously, in uh, these lectures, 
is the financial stability function. Central banks try to keep the financial system working normally, and in particular, they either they try to prevent, or if unsuccessful in preventing, uh, they try to mitigate financial panics or financial crises. And I'll talk more about what, what those are. Now, what are the tools that uh, central banks use to achieve these two broad objectives? Very, in very uh, simple terms, there are basically two broad sets of tools. On the economic stability side, uh, the main tool, as I'm sure everyone knows, is monetary policy. In normal times, uh, the Fed, for example, can raise or lower short-term interest rates. It does that by buying and selling securities in the open market. In, again, in normal times, if the economy is growing too slowly or inflation is falling too low, um, the Fed can stimulate the economy by lowering interest rates. Lower interest rates feed through to a broad range of other interest rates. Uh, that encourages uh, spending, uh, acquisition of homes, for example, construction, uh, investment by firms, uh, borrowing. It just generates more demand, more spending, more investment uh, in the economy, and that creates more thrust and growth. So there's plenty of research out there to establish that it's not banking mystics who think banks can create money out of nothing and therefore make the system different, but we don't really understand what's going on. If you're going to have incomes growing over time, then demand has to be growing. And for that to happen, current spending has to be greater than that, which could be financed out of current, current income alone. You said it therefore follows that some agents in the system have to be financing their expenditure by borrowing money or by selling assets. So a rising debt is an essential part of a capitalist economy and not one that has to be criticised. It actually plays an essential role when it finances investment. But it also finances Ponzi schemes. And this is where we get into the trouble we are now. And of course a Ponzi scheme involves an agent who is losing money, fundamentally losing money, and therefore has to either sell assets for a higher price than they were purchased for, or borrow money before they can sell the asset. They have an insatiable demand for money, and therefore they're an essential part of the expansion of the money supply during a boom like the one we went through that people thought was a great moderation. Now that debt in turn drives up asset prices. And Minsky again argues when you have a period of tranquil growth that reduces the concern people have about the future, they, hold, they want to hold money less and hold income earning assets more or speculative assets more, leading to a rise in the price of capital assets and therefore more Ponzi finance accepted by bankers and therefore the financial system endogenously generates at least part of the finance that's needed to sustain that Ponzi behaviour. The internet has been abuzz over the blogosphere boxing match between Nobel laureate and New York Times columnist Paul Krugman and the debunker of conventional wisdom and superhero economist Steve Keen taking on the mainstream machine of economics. Now, if you are just, you know, catching up with this, let me bring you up to speed. So you had Krugman comment on one of Steve Keen's blog posts, and you can see uh, his post there on his New York Times column. Uh, and he questions and rejects some of what Keen is arguing in Minsky and methodology. Keen responds, defending his alternative approaches. You can see his post there. He notes that Paul Krugman has been commenting on his blog. So this continues. Some others weigh in with their two cents. Some more back and forth ensue. It gets a lot of buzz. It seems to end with a kind of an embarrassing, really, and at least slightly lazy seeming post where Krugman takes part of Keene's post out of context and then refutes it. 
Well, the crux of the argument is that I'm one of the group of non-conventional economists who argue you can't model the economy without including the role of banks, debt and money. And Krugman's part of the economic establishment, which for 30 or 40 years uh, has got away with arguing you can model uh, a capitalist economy as if it has no banks in it, no money and no debt. And we've been screaming for ages from the sidelines saying, hey, you can't do that. You just don't have a model of capitalism if you don't include those components. Along comes the financial crisis. Characters like me predicted it using models including money, banks and debt. And now Krugman comes along and says, oh, well, I can't see why you should actually bother having models of uh, banks, debt and money uh, in macroeconomics. They're irrelevant. They don't matter to the macroeconomy, which, frankly, there's somebody like me and I hope most people in the real world gobsmacked because, hey, we're living in the middle of a banking crisis caused by too much debt. To really hammer it home, what is that? real major one sticking point that you guys are, are arguing about, that, that, that real sticking point? Well, the real sticking point is whether, uh, the, whether you can have a macroeconomic model of the economy that leaves out banking and debt. Mm -hmm. And Krugman argues that banking and debt is irrelevant to macroeconomics, which is frankly bizarre in the middle of the biggest financial crisis in history, where the behavior of banks is what gave us the crisis. We are really listening to people we should not be listening to anymore because the one thing their theory predicted was you couldn't have an enormous long-running long downturn precisely like the one we're in now. And he also says, and this is the part that I find quite most outrageous, that the level of debt and the, the rate of change of private debt doesn't matter. But if you do a graph, and you've seen me do this before, of the ratio of private debt to income in America to GDP, you get one enormous peak in the Great Depression, then a decline uh, through the Great Depression, another rise from low levels of debt up to high levels of debt right now and then another fall. So the two depressions we've had in the last century have both been coincident with rising levels of debt to GDP. Mm -hmm. Now he's saying, oh that's irrelevant, doesn't matter, of course on my uh, logical deductive reasoning front, the level of debt doesn't matter, therefore they can't possibly cause a depression. Two of the last two depressions have had debt bubbles. Mm -hmm. They're just mm -hmm. denying the, it's as if you've got a model of you know, circular motion of the planets We've just had a collision with a huge meteor that they claim can't happen, and they're denying that it matters. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they really are anti-empirical, and it's time we push them off the stage. People here, certainly outside, are now realising that they can't leave economics to the economists. And when they look inside it and see how unrealistic the mainstream are, and see people like myself and the, the MMT crowd as well, from the post-Keynesian position, and even Austrians, they're saying, hey, maybe the people who have been marginalised make, make more sense than the mainstream does. It's time we supported them. So maybe we can break down the neoclassical citadel from the outside with the help of the public. So we had a question from one of our listeners, Andrew, and he said he was discussing debt jubilee with some of his friends, and his friends were bringing up the moral hazard argument, and they were saying that people 
who have debt would get this benefit and then they wouldn't learn the lesson of going into debt in the first place. And so what would you say to Andrew that he could tell his friends when discussing the ideas of debt jubilee to kind of get past this moral hazard argument? Well, the moral hazard was letting the speculation and flip that house and all, all the garbage, the debt that was generated by the financial system in the last 20 years. That was the fundamental moral hazard. The, the moral hazard would disappear here because we're doing it with a debt jubilee. You, I'm trying to do it in such a way that you don't penalise people who didn't get into debt. Okay, if you just do a straight debt abolition, then there'd be a strong argument for asymmetry that you are benefiting people who are in debt but not benefiting those who saved. So the idea is to say, well, let's take a careful look at this. Who benefits from rising debt? And the only group in society that really benefits from rising debt is the financial sector because that's increasing the volume of debt around as a major way that they increase the profits they make. So we've let them get too big. We've got to reduce them directly. And a debt jubilee gets debtors out of debt that they should never have been given in the first place. It's your responsibility at the lender that plays the major role there. Doesn't penalise savers because they turn, you know, bonds they might own into, into cash instead, which they can spend. But it reduces the size of the financial sector and drastically reduces its profits. So it's putting the pressure on the part of society that should take that pressure. Whereas any other means, including straight debt abolition without the other trick I'm talking about of a, a modern debt jubilee would actually have, uh, you know, benefit the, would potentially have moral hazard components. So you can design it in such a way as to minimise the moral hazard element. And then in future, I'd want to stop the possibility of people perceiving that they can make money by gambling on rising asset prices. So I've got ideas about how to redefine shares and property ownership then uh, so this doesn't happen again. It's being able to describe to people that it's the system that has failed as opposed to these individual people who just want to run up their credit card because they're irresponsible. How, how do you think you can get that message across to people when they would perhaps oppose this idea? Well, one of the ways is look at the data. I mean, take, take the American household debt data, subtract the mortgage debt from it and see what you're left over with and see whether you can see your responsibility and the level of personal debt. And what you'll see is when personal debt's related to income, it's fairly stable. It obviously goes up and down at various times. But people, people when, they're buy, when they're borrowing money for the basis of their income alone, they don't do it irresponsibly. The only time they do is when they think they can make money by rising asset prices. But it's then a positive feedback between accelerating debt and rising asset prices that causes the bubble in the first place. So it's the financial sector's responsibility for it. And you look back historically, Every major crisis of capitalism has been a financial crisis. It's the financial sector that does this every time. And until we realise it's systemic rather than the responsibility of individuals, we're going to continue repeating the systemic mistake. We have to redefine the system in such a way that you no longer have that individual encouragement to leverage speculation. And one of the ways to start redesigning the system is through changing the ways that economics is taught. We've gone through a lot of different topics in this interview about what the dynamics are right now, how we got here, how this plays out historically, and then how we could potentially move forward. But how do you think we could potentially move forward in changing the ways that economics are currently taught? Well, the first thing I'd do is abolish the monopoly that economics departments have on teaching economics. Uh, I've, I've been party when I was a junior member of staff to seeing my economics department prevent any course with the word economics in it occurring in any other department anywhere else in the university in the basis they were the experts. Now one of the ironies of course is that neoclassical economics is very anti-monopoly. 
They say monopolies are a bad thing, you know, restricting competition. Great, let's apply that to academia. Let the biology department run a course in economics. Let the engineering department run a course in economics. Let them use their different paradigms to apply themselves to the issue of how do the economy function. So that, in a start, would enable new approaches to economics to be born because an economics department is an incredibly hostile environment for non-neoclassical thought. I'm picking from... Plenty of experience there. I'm extremely lucky that my department has been oriented towards uh, a heterodox approach, letting both neoclassical and non-neoclassical get taught. But in most universities, over time, they've shut down any course which teaches anything other than neoclassical economics. So democratize the teaching of economics across the university. That's the first step. Second step would be to get business to support the development of realistic economics because one reason neoclassical economics has had such a bulk word is that people in business think, oh, they're pro-capitalist, we should support them. But the reality is they're pro-capitalist in the same way that a bunch of, of raving uh, religious zealots uh, are pro-society, pro pro-stability. You let the religious zealots take over a society and you start getting the Taliban coming out of it, which is not good for anybody. So I would argue that business should be supporting the development of realistic economic theory, even when that realism ends up being critical of some aspects of capitalism. How would you start designing a new textbook for economics students? So many of the issues that you deal with in debunking economics has to do with the way that the information is presented in the introductory economics classes. And do you think that there's a way to structure a textbook that could start getting past those issues? I've actually been asked that question recently by a department in Chicago, so I'm actually uh, hoping that something can come out of that for a master's the, course to begin with. The Chicago yeah. School of Economics? Oh, God, no, no, not them. No, no, uh, <laughs> a, um, St. Paul's, I think it is. No, there's no Chicago. If there's any place in the world that would shoot me on sight, it would be the University of Chicago's economics <laughs> department. I know, I was thinking uh, they probably have uh, wanted posters up for you there. I, I expect there would be. Uh, but no, with, uh, I'd start with the second law of thermodynamics, believe it or not. The reason being that teaches that entropy rises, disorder rises over time. Now, of course, production is decreasing disorder. If you take a lump of raw materials and turn it into a, uh, a Ford Chevy or whatever, you know, an automobile, you've made it more order, not less. But the second law of thermodynamics tells us that therefore you must have created more disorder somewhere else than the, in, the, in the ecology. So you immediately would link production as being a reduction in entropy, which requires free energy for it to happen. But for that to occur, you then have to have an increase in disorder elsewhere. So you link the ecology and economy right from the beginning, and you also explain where the physical surplus comes from, which is something which is never really properly communicated in economics courses. The next thing I'd start with is modelling a cyclical economy. So I'd start with uh, Goodwin's growth model, which is a, a model that says, here's the capital stock, divide that by the capital to output ratio, you get the amount of output produced, divide that by the workforce, you get how many workers you need to hire, feed that into the uh, population rate, you work out what the employment level is, that'll tell you how fast wages change, that gives you a level of wage bill, subtract that from output, you've got profit, presume profits are all invested, feed it back into the system again, what's the level of capital stock? Out of that, you get a cyclical economy. It's called a growth cycle model. I can build that in 10 minutes in a simulation program in front of a class of students. And that immediately gets them to say, hey, maybe capitalism's cyclical. Maybe it's not heading towards equilibrium, which is what the other mob are arguing. The next thing I'd then do is go into saying, how does a monetary system work? And I've built a modeling approach that lets me build a, effectively a double entry bookkeeping, a, an accounting framework, and derive from that the dynamics of a financial system. Then I put them all together uh, with Minsky's financial instability hypothesis and explain the financial crisis. 
that'd be the beginning of my education. And then I'd go back and teach them the greats that have been neglected by economists for the last century, people like Schumpeter, Marx, Keynes, as he was written, not Keynes, he's misinterpreted by Samuelson and Solo, and, uh, and take it from there and teach as much as I can in systems theory as well, teaching them how to model complex nonlinear dynamics, which really is the beginnings of understanding the evolutionary system the economy really is. Do you have advice to current students in economics who might be in a department and all they're getting is the neoclassical view of economics and perhaps they're listening to this interview and hearing, yeah, you know, I do have these gut level reactions to the things I'm hearing in class that there's something wrong here, but maybe they don't know how to express it? Well, the first thing is trust your gut. I did that when I did back in first year. I, I believed all this stuff when I did my universe, my economics education at school. I was a fervent believer in, I didn't even know it was neoclassical economics at the time, but I believed in it thoroughly. And then I had a teacher in um, the end of my first year class, a guy called Frank Stilwell, explain a flaw in the theory called the theory of the second best. And that completely inverted the logic about what one should do about monopolies and unions. And it stunned me that you could do it so easily, use the theory against itself and, and could reverse its conclusions. So my gut reaction began at that point. And I just thought, oh, this, this, is, this is garbage. There's got to be some reason why this is garbage. Well, I then looked into the economic literature and found that while I was being taught all this nice simplistic stuff, it looked complicated, but it was really simplistic about equilibrium and so on and comparative statics and so on, there was a debate going on called the Cambridge Controversies about the very definition of capital. In the literature, you could find it in the journals, but it wasn't being taught by the textbooks. So I then went and read all that stuff myself and gradually taught myself an alternative approach to economics. And I finally realized that my gut reactions were completely well-founded. I'd recommend students do a similar thing. And what I've done in writing Debunking Economics is try to write a simple introduction to that literature and give you all the references you need to actually explore it yourself afterwards. So a bit of self-plugging, if you really do feel that way, get a copy of Debunking Economics, have a read, and then go and follow the, the leads I give you in the bibliography to actually look up the original literature. And you'll see that the your gut reactions about the theory being must be nonsense are correct. And we have to build an alternative economics and ignore this neoclassical nonsense. So students could actually have the references there that when they challenge their professor in class asking a question, they could say, you know, here's this paper from this year in this journal, and it presents this completely opposite theory to what we're learning in class that's in this textbook. Why do you think that is? Is that yeah, what exactly. uh, the resource they'd have? Yep, that's exactly. I mean, my, I'd actually suggest students start with the work of Robert Solow in the last 10 years, because Robert Solow devised the neoclassical growth model and is a, a very conservative a neoclassical economist, but he's also given his due, he's willing to engage with critics, he fought in the Cambridge controversies on the side of neoclassical theory, but he also has, a, has an innate realism to him, and he is horrified that what are called dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models are used by economists because he said these models are supposed to capture the trade cycle, but he said they're nothing other than a slightly dressed up version of my growth model. And one thing I knew about it when I revised the growth model was that it, couldn't, it simply could not cope with short-term fluctuations of the business cycle. So he's been fighting a rearguard action against it for a decade now and being completely ignored. And yet he's one of the stalwarts, one of the giants of neoclassical theory. So I would suggest the students grab those papers by Solow, all of which I referenced in the book, and go and have a read of them, and then quote Solow back at their lecture and say, uh, Robert Solow says this is garbage. Uh, who should I trust, him or you? Absolutely. And so how, how long do you think it is before ideas like this could actually get on the direct line to Ben Bernanke and, and start influencing policy? Do you, do you see that in the near term? 
No, I don't. I'm afraid I agree. Max Planck put this brilliantly back with physicists. So it isn't just economics that has this sort of obsession with past theories and won't let go of the past theories. Max Planck was the man who worked out the calculus that should prove that energy had to come in discrete quanta. He didn't expect to get that result. It was a surprise from extremely complicated uh, integration. But when he got it, he realized it solved the black body radiation problem that completely flummoxed the Maxwellian approach to um, uh, energy that he was part of beforehand and he tried to persuade his fellow Maxwellian physicists that this was the answer and they just refused to listen to him and Max Planck finally said and this is a, qu a quote from uh, Kuhn's book The Structure of Scientific Revolutions that science advances one funeral at a time and the way you actually bring about change is not by converting people who believe in an old theorem but by having new people come along who are amenable to it so I have no hope of changing Ben Bernanke's mind uh, all I can do is, is I hopefully satirize them in the public sufficiently that people start looking at an alternative approach. It's the young who can immediately grab onto the idea that money is endogenously created, that the level of private debt matters, that you've got to model the economy dynamically, not, not in comparative statics. They're the ones with whom the future hope holds. And my best allies aren't uh, fellow economists I might convert, but people from real professions like engineering and biology who might come across and help me. And actually, that's where I come from with an engineering and physics background. And I took a fourth year class in an economics department called environmental economics. And I realized that everything they were talking about was completely disconnected from reality. And that's what kind of clued me in to the disconnect between neoclassical economic thinking and the actual world that we live in. And it's, it's interesting you bring that up because so many of the people who have gone on to challenge the neoclassical worldview have done so from just using the second law of thermodynamics and, and starting at that point. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's, that's got to be the foundation. So a bright future for up-and-coming economists who are willing to think outside the neoclassical framework. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. I mean, I'm trying to help that in very ways as well. So as well as having an alternative paradigm, you need alternative modeling tools as well. So with the help of a grant from the, the Institute for New, New Economic Thinking, I'm designing a software package called Minsky, which enables uh, both the sort of flowchart modeling you'd be used to from packages like Simulink that I presume you used in your engineering degree, which handle physical flows very effectively. And the tabular approach I've developed, I call it to, to financial flows that I call a godly table, which enables you to model monetary flows in a way that's very, very complicated in packages like Simulink or VizSim. So that package will be available in about, it's actually available on SourceForge right now at a very, very early level, but hopefully by the end of the year, it'll be a freely available download for people to play with and hopefully extend in the open source play. And that, I hope, will be the beginning of a realistic monetary approach to economics, which lets us integrate engineering thinking with, with economics and get away from this static equilibrium nonsense of neoclassical economics.
started thinking about the subject of debt for a number of reasons, but among them was my puzzlement over a turn of phrase. He's paid his debt to society. What happens when people don't pay their debts, or can't pay their debts, or won't pay their debts? What if the debt is one that by its very nature cannot be repaid with money? You know, we're used to disasters here, not dreaming it was going to be as bad as it got. Wealthy countries are the major contributors to the growing ecological debt, the debt that human beings owe the planet. I think there is this deep sense that human society is unjust. If you are poor in a free market, freedom is just another word for nothing that you can afford. The natural sense of justice is a Darwinian matter where people should take what they can get. There have been abuses and they're horrible. What is going on in the tomato fields is so bad that it defies words. I was a prisoner myself. I don't think prison is the answer, but the concept of people paying a debt to society has largely been lost sight of. I'm by no means innocent. I steal, I buy drugs, I get caught within a couple of weeks and come back to prison for a few years. This, to me, is not paying back. How we think about it changes how it works. To close out our interview with Steve Keen, that was the trailer to a new film, Payback, based on Margaret Atwood's book on debt and also her series of lectures here in Canada, the Massey Lectures on Debt. And we're joined by Jennifer Bachewall, who is the director of Payback. And the film explores different aspects of debt and our psychological relationships to the way that debts operate. And since we were just speaking with Steve Keen about his ideas of debt forgiveness, in your film, you trace from places as remote as the mountains of Albania to modern slavery in Florida to the Deepwater Horizon disaster and many other places to look at the relationships between debts and the ways that we think about them. And we wanted to start out by talking with you on how the way that we think about debt changes the way that it operates in our society. It's an interesting thing because one of the reasons that I followed those four quite distinct stories in the film is that in Atwood's book, there really is an exploration of this seemingly symbiotic relationship between creditor and debtor in many aspects of life, this pushing and pulling between the person who is owed and the person who owes. And I was thinking about that, well, how do you illustrate that issue? And so, for example, the Deepwater Horizon, the BP oil spill, one of the reasons that we talked about that or or had that as a story is to illustrate that um, some debts can't be paid with money and the absurdity of trying to put a monetary figure on the damage that was done that we still don't know the full extent of environmentally to that ecosystem. And I think that when we step back from, for example, this idea of exchange, money itself is a symbol of exchange and actually, you know, meaningless in, in, in many contexts, certainly in the ecosystem of the Gulf to the fish that are dying and the birds that were covered in oil and, and the, the species that live in that ecosystem, uh, money is meaningless. And 
I think one of the things that I found really interesting working on this in the connection of how we think about it changes how it works is that the the idea of of bringing a kind of misreading of Darwin into economics, the survival of the fittest, every man or woman for him or herself, etc. And I think that that um, is a, is a misleading concept. And one of the people that we talked to um, while I was doing research who didn't end up in the film was the primatologist Franz de Waal, who um, has written books on uh, empathy in other species and how empathy is a kind of possibly innate characteristic, a sense of fairness that we have. And he talks about humans and other social species like chimpanzees and capuchin monkeys, etc., as being primarily cooperative rather than competitive. And how we survive as a species depends much more upon cooperation than competition. So when I think about how we interact with each other every day and all the little tallies that we make up of, oh, you know, I, I, I owe that person a favor, or, you know, they invited us for dinner, we're going to invite them for dinner. They you know, covered for me at work, they picked up my kid from school. The things that we do, how we interact, is very much about this reciprocal altruism. And I think if we think more along those terms of the way that we cooperate rather than the way that we compete, that may change our idea of who owes us and how we are owed. So in your film, it becomes kind of apparent that there's a huge rift between rich and poor of this world. Um, huge concentrations of wealth has led to enormous excess and affluence while leaving other people of the world in destitute poverty. Why is the gulf between rich and poor so great? And how did it get this way? Well, I'm not an economist, and I'm also not a fan of, of traditional models of capitalism or neo-capitalism. So I, I would say that this gulf um, between rich and poor, and when you look at the story of the coalition of Immokalee workers, it is not only devastating and appalling that um, people are living in those conditions day to day, two hours from the beaches of spring break in Florida where people are frolicking around and spending lots of money. Um, and then you go into the tomato fields, the dry, dusty, hot, pesticide-filled tomato fields, and people are getting paid at the absolute minimum and actually be are, are involved in actual cases of slavery. It, it's appalling. It's absolutely appalling. And I think that part of that comes from, I mean, to me, a lack of consciousness with all of us who participate in this economic system. And the, the film that we made before this one called Manufactured Landscapes was about the Industrial Revolution in China. But it was very much more about how we are all responsible for, here in the West, certainly, and in developed countries, for these places that are making the things that we use every day. And these are places that we are responsible for, but would never normally see. And I don't think anybody really, I mean, probably more so now, but we don't spend a lot of time thinking about where the tomato on our hamburger comes from or the tomato that's in our salad comes from. Once you know the origin of that place, once you've seen it, once you've been with the people who are uh, there every day, I think it is impossible for your consciousness not to shift in a way that must create some kind of social responsibility. Well, you know, when you see where your iPhone is made or the little things that we use every day, irons, for example, we, we were in the largest iron factory in the world 
um, in China. And it, it just becomes apparent that there is somebody who is putting all of that together. And there is a place it goes to after we throw it away when we don't need it anymore. What do those places look like? We're responsible for those places. So one answer I would give to that question is that there is a lack of consciousness in all of us who participate in these economic systems that have such huge rifts between rich and poor about uh, the way that we participate. And I think if we can be more conscious of and draw attention to the continuums in this economic system from the person who is at the very bottom to the person who is at the top, I would hope that that would awaken the conscience of the people who participate in it and and cause some kind of social change and economic change. And in the film, you you cover the story of the Immokalee workers in Florida, and there's, I believe it was the director of uh, one of the boards who represents a lot of the tomato growers in Washington, and he was saying that to pay an extra penny on tomatoes would be un-American because it's not allocating efficiency properly. And that's the mindset a lot of people are using when they look at these issues. And and yet most Americans are not going to be aware that there's modern slavery occurring in their country. What was it like when you actually started talking to people about the issues of of modern slavery in the United States? Oh, they were completely shocked. I mean, people had no idea that that was going on. Not just that, but, you know, when we were the, the super, I mean, it all, it, it's all about the the buyers and the suppliers. So it's not just about the growers, you know, it's not just about the growers who do not want to participate in this. And the person who actually said that was uh, Reggie Brown, who was representing the the Florida Tomato Growers Association, said it would be un-American to pay a penny per pound more. And actually, it is the buyers that put that kind of pressure on the growers as well. So for example, it wasn't until just recently that Trader Joe's signed an agreement with the Coalition of Immokalee Workers to participate in the program for fair food. And there are still um, uh, supermarket chains like Publix, which is the biggest uh, grocery store chain in Florida, that have not signed that agreement and refuse to sign that agreement. So it's the pressure that we put on the people who buy it. We, you know, it's the, that, the old argument that as a consumer you have power uh, in that way. If you go into public supermarket and say, I'm not, I'm not shopping here because you don't participate in the fair food agreement, um, maybe something will change there. So when, I, when we talk to people, that's what I mean about expanding consciousness is that it's, you don't have to make a didactic argument to bring somebody to a, a point of knowledge about something that they may not have thought about before. Simply letting them witness a situation, I think, uh, which is one of the powers of documentary, allowing viewers to witness these places they're responsible for but would not normally see perhaps can create a shift in consciousness in itself, just witnessing. So how did your views on debt change as you were making this film? I'm sure going to places like the remote parts of Albania that you did and seeing how, how the old laws deal with debt and how that can really starve people slowly, it must have been really, really powerful. You know, it was for me, when I first um, was introduced to this project by the National Film Board, I immediately said, I don't know anything about money. I wouldn't, if I were interested in money, I wouldn't be a documentary filmmaker. So don't, uh, I'm not the right person for this uh, adaptation. And I made the mistake of thinking that Atwood's book was all about money. And in fact, her book is all about an understanding of debt and how much debt is not about money. And that's what really intrigued me about it. I mean, you go back to 
religious ideas of sin eaters, for example, people who were paid to eat the sin of the per, per somebody who had died before getting, um, you know, absolved, for example. And if, if they were handed food over the coffin of the person who was dead, they would symbolically be taking on the sin of that person. Um, all of these things are fascinating, but they, they indicate that we live in a world where we really are, there are many symbols of exchange and money is, is just one of them. Uh, and as I said before, at, at, in certain situations, and it, it's, it's good for us to remember this, in many different situations, um, money can become absolutely meaningless. That's what I learned. Yeah. So is that what you're hoping people can take away from the film? The idea that there's financial debts, but there's so many other types of debts that we carry around with us, whether it's going to prison for debts or having these other forms of, of exchange in society? Well, I mean, I'm not. Most of our films are they they're more elliptical than linear. They don't end at a certain place. And I, I'm certainly not making a trying to make an argument for one particular way of looking at something. I'm not. I'm trying to open up a space to think about something in a different way. And what I learned from the book and from making the film is that there it is multifaceted as an idea, uh, the idea of debt, but also that we as a species um, are, are much more defined by our cooperation than our competition. And I think that that, that idea and remembering that uh, in our daily interactions with others and our global interactions with others, you know, may have some impact on, uh, you know, I still believe that some kind of utopia is possible uh, at some point. I do. I do. I'm not a cynic. Um, I believe that we can get there, but we have to work at it. Feeling that optimism is very important. So how can uh, people in the United States and Canada see your film? How can they get a hold of it? Well, the film is just uh, in in the middle of being released in Canada, so it is it's 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 just finishing playing a release in Toronto and Vancouver, and it's going across the country, and then of course it will be available on you know various on demand uh, and DVD, and it's opening in New York next week, uh, the twenty fifth um, at Film Forum, and then it will slowly go across the country in different theaters and. Uh, uh, festivals, et cetera, et cetera, and then will be available um, in you know DVD and on demand, et cetera, there as well. And then it's playing in Europe too, in different festivals. It's going to, uh, it may be playing in the Kosovo Film Festival, which would be interesting because it means that some of our uh, the people we were with in Albania will be able to come to that. That will be an interesting uh, screening. Wow! Yeah, that'd <laughs> be cool. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for speaking with us today. And we had one last question, and I was wondering about, we were talking with Steve Keen about concepts of debt forgiveness. How um, did your concept of forgiving debts change when you were making the film? Because you went to these different scenarios, and I was just wondering if you saw pathways that people were either willing or not willing to give up the debts that they'd incurred. Well, that's quite, it's interesting because that whole idea of debt jubilees is really quite fascinating, especially when you're dealing with global situations of developing countries with massive debt loads that are, you know, when you, when you unpack that kind of debt and think about, you know, the, what has led to that situation um, in terms of, of history, historical precedents of, you know, in, in 
colonialization and and uh, uh, exploitation. It, it it's it's impossible to start at a clear place to say we're both beginning at an equal place and therefore you owe me all of this because of, of I just don't think it's possible. We're too embedded and and so I believe very much in the idea of of these debt jubilees, especially in cases where developing countries are crippled by debt. But when you're in a situation like Albania, where you have two families that are, it, it really is an intransigence, where you can see how, you can see both sides and you can see how difficult it is for these people to forgive each other. And I think we're all capable of very primal feelings of of vengefulness or protectiveness and you don't have to scratch very far to find that I think uh, in all of us and it would sort of it's good for us to remember I think how how we are governed by those forces in our personal relationships in some respect and I'm not saying that you know that it's the opposite of rationality I think it is you know sometimes those protectiveness those feelings are good so uh, but I, I do think that it's hard for people to let go. And certainly in Albania, it was hard to let go. When I think about Deepwater Horizon, I mean, and the people who live in that area, I just, I just don't know how you get to a point of, how can you forgive BP for that? How can you forgive, you know, the, the U.S. government for having lax rules about offshore drilling? I don't know. I, I, I don't know how, how you get to a position of forgiveness there. Humans have become a rogue species. We share with other species two very important ecological qualities. The first is a tendency to completely fill all accessible habitat. The second is a tendency to use all available resources. But we're the only one that's been able to take the cap off of that and actually release ourselves to grow indefinitely. So almost all rich uh, countries exist in a state of what we call ecological deficit. They're, they're overshooting their own domestic carrying capacity or biocapacity. So each year, as they are in that state of overshoot, their deficit is increasing, and it's essentially adding to the ecological debt. And you were just hearing University of British Columbia professor Bill Rees there in the film Payback. Thanks again to Jennifer for joining us to talk about the film. And so in moving on to talk a bit more about our interview with Steve Keen on economics, the ways of teaching economics that could actually make a difference, the reason why the global debt problems are manifesting in, in Europe and across the world. And I was recently over on the East Coast, Seth, and that's one of the reasons it took us a while to edit and put this episode together. And I was in Washington, D.C., and I sat in on a panel session, and the founder of Burt's Bees was there. And she was saying that what happened is when she started out as a small company, she took great care to make sure that they did everything possible to minimize packaging and minimize energy and material input into what they were doing as a company, they got bought out by Clorox. So one of the students in the room asks her, so do you think that they're still using entirely post-consumer recycled plastic in the bottles? And she goes, well, you know, I haven't really followed it all that closely anymore. I'm not sure if they're using plastics that are recycled or not in everything that they're producing. 
but she said it in a way that was really disingenuous and I was thinking the whole time I was like what do you mean she started this company from the ground up and worked hard on it you think she's not following what's happening in the company and it goes to me it says what if she just said you know they're not producing completely post-consumer recycled plastics in the lotion bottles or whatever it is. The reason they're doing that is because it doesn't work on an economy of scale because the demands that Clorox faces as a major corporation are different from what a small business can do. To me, it says, why is it that people don't question the fundamentals of the economic system in the way that Steve Keen brings up in his critiques of how economics works? Yeah, it's very true, Justin. And, you know, people take the fundamentals of the economy as truth, as something that can't be debated, as something that is one of those universal truths that can't ever be changed. It's kind of like a, a religion or a uh, governmental system or something that is just so fundamental to what many people believe is the right way and the only way to do a certain type of system. If you start talking about it in a way that questions these beliefs, People get very upset and they can get very distraught when you start saying, hey, maybe this isn't the right way to think about money. Maybe this is not the right way to think about large corporations. It kind of puts people off. And that's a perfect segue because, you know, Justin, Burt's Bees is actually headquartered in Durham, North Carolina, where I work. And you recently visited here, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I came by Durham for a few nights and was able to stay with you, had dinner with your family hung out for a bit. It was a great time. We got to talk a little bit about plans for upcoming episodes of The Extra Environmentalist. And yeah, it was really a great time. It was. And Justin and I did some heavy duty bike touring of Duke University campus and all a lot of downtown Durham. Checked out some local eateries and stuff like that. But I actually did meet up with a listener in Washington, D.C. Oh, that's right. I met up with Steve, and it was great to talk to him about all the ways in which planning operates in the city of Washington, D.C. And he was telling me that one of the things that the city of Washington, D.C. is trying to do is make zoning more effective. There's this whole profession of people because the zoning laws are so complex that their jobs are based around helping people navigate those zoning laws. The city of D.C. is trying to make the zoning laws more efficient and trim down that regular people can understand them, but there's tremendous pushback from all of these people who make their living off of complicated zoning laws. And I thought that was an excellent demonstration of why societal change is so hard and why social momentum exists and why the context that we're embedded in now is so difficult to navigate and work our way through because any kind of change means that some people are going to have to adapt that don't necessarily want to adapt. I mean, I met hydrofracking lobbyists. I met all kinds of people who make their living off of things that are completely the antithesis of where we want to head as a society. But how do you tell those people that we don't need you to do what you're doing anymore? We need you to do these other things. Well, it's the same kind of way you can tell a person not to drive their car that five feet to the next shopping center instead of walking. It's the same way that you try to tell people, hey, maybe you shouldn't be watching that six and a half hours of TV that an average American watches every day. Maybe you should, you know, read a book. It kind of goes against everything that they believe in and everything that they think that they deserve. The American way of life is to make a buck wherever you can, however you can. Who cares about the earth? Who cares about other people in a lot of ways? As we spoke with Morris Berman about. But one of the interesting things about visiting you in Durham is seeing how normal everything is in many ways, despite the fact that so many things are changing around the world. You know, everyone still has a car and they can still fill it with gasoline and they have jobs and everyone lives in nice big houses with 
finely cut lawns. It's it's kind of a, a very large departure from this podcast where we talk about how everything is going to be uh, different and how everything is going to be very drastically changed. And when you walk outside your door and you see that everything is pretty much the way it's been for the last 20 years, maybe gas prices are a little bit more expensive. Maybe food prices are a little bit more expensive, but everything is pretty much the same way it's been. How do you approach somebody and try to explain these messages to them when everything is basically the same as it's always been in their lifetime and not, not much has changed. Yeah, well, I think it's tough because if you look at macroeconomic numbers that are coming out from around the world, in February alone, Swedish industrial production fell 5.2% and fell 7.1% year over year, despite a projected gain of few tenths of a percent. So industrial production just fell in Sweden, you know, a major economy. Italian and Spanish bond yields are approaching critical thresholds. First quarter home prices in Beijing fell 20.7%. Wow. Spanish home prices are down 31.8% in February alone. I mean, it's insane, some of these numbers that are coming out. You know, I see- Yeah, those are not trivial numbers. Right, it's not a few percent. We're talking like 10, 20, 30% kind of collapses in industrial production worldwide in, you know, airlines i'm reading all the time about first quarter profits for airlines and how they fell like 20 30 40 percent in some cases it's insane the rate at which everything's falling apart but yet everything seems so normal and you can't really go up to someone who's still getting that paycheck you know maybe every other friday they can still do all the things that they're used to doing and saying like look you know at all these austerity riots in spain or look at all of the people in this village in greece where there's now 60 percent unemployment and there's a humanitarian crisis because people are starving you know how do you get that across to people in the United States, I don't know if there's a way to do it. And it's really frustrating because that's the direction that the US economy is headed to because of the unsustainable debt levels that we were talking about with Steve Keen. It's just manifesting in European economies first because their ties to other economies and the ways that their banks are larger than the national economy themselves are playing out. And so the American economy can stimulate growth through artificial ways to help stave off this debt and currency crisis a little bit longer. But because of the difficulty politically of European countries and having to rely on Germans or Finnish people or you know whoever else to bail out the Spanish economy is really hard to get the political consensus to do, the debt crisis that we've been talking about is really manifesting there. At the same time, Americans don't often see the full story. They might see an image or two of smashed windows in Barcelona from austerity riots, but they're not able to make the connection that, you know, we're in the same boat as those guys. Often I find in the United States, they're just like, oh, you know, that's what happens when socialism fails. There's no sitcom talking about austerity measures in Greece. You know, Kim Kardashian is not going to Greece cutting down her food budget, is she? She's not (laughs) going to Spain and living on the street as an unemployed college graduate is she no yeah no she's it'd be, not it'd be exciting if she did that you know it would be it would be very enlightening and I, I bet a lot of viewers would would learn a lot about these issues and the world would probably have a little bit more pity and sympathy for these situations that are going on and what i i would hope that people in the united states are able to understand is that these countries 
are just further down the road and it's the same road that we're going on and it's actually going to be worse in the United States because of the size of the debt and because of so many different issues related to the society. We have no transportation infrastructure for dealing with these kind of things. No social infrastructure or transportation infrastructure and even though the Occupy movement was incredible to see how quickly it rose up and how many underlying societal issues actually got brought to the forefront because of what they did, it's still so far from making any actual change in the way the society operates. You know, it was able to influence the way that the conversation occurred, but it was not in any way able to influence the ways that decisions are being made in the society. The political rhetoric is still the same, despite the fact that the American way of life is just churning and churning and falling away faster and faster. For example, I came to Durham on the train that ran through North Carolina. And That's right, I picked you up. And Durham has a beautiful new train station, which is so awesome. And North Carolina is moving forward on making train travel faster and easier between all its major cities. But one of the things that you see when you take the train, when typically I would take the interstate highways, I would take the interstates to go around the state of North Carolina. What you definitely see when you take the train is the whole way are busted out factories that are old and decaying and represented a time when there was a tremendous manufacturing infrastructure in the state. So the economic decline that North Carolina is facing along with the rest of the nation hasn't arisen overnight. It didn't start in 2008. It started many, many years ago. It's really hard to start moving in the next direction, you know, start getting things headed in a different direction because it's been going on for so long and always one factory closed down and a few hundred people lost their jobs. But what's happened is now when you ride the train, you just see factory after factory after factory, literally the entire way, you know, the hundreds of miles that I traveled, it was just burnout factory after broken down factory. That's pretty exciting. Maybe those factories can be revitalized and the North Carolina industry can be revitalized. Maybe Durham can be the new tobacco hub that it used to be. Everyone will want to start smoking cigarettes again, I'm sure. That's what I'm envisioning for the collapse of society is everyone's going to become chain smokers once again. <laughs> you know, I, I do read about how cigarettes are really good for use as a currency. Maybe Durham can start growing the currency of the future. The currency of the future at home in Durham. Another thing that Steve King was talking about was how economists are obsessed with stability you know, having stable growth rates, having stable aspects of, of the economic model flood in and what they can't handle is volatility. And so back in September, we saw tremendous volatility as the euro was crashing, as bond yields in all of these European countries were spiking to new high levels and everyone was freaking out. And then something happened. The long-term refinancing operation occurred and the European Central Bank started funding tremendous amounts of the European economy, and then everything stabilized. But also what happened is financial markets stopped crashing and volume just went to almost decade lows in terms of how many stocks were being traded. I mean, it was insane how little action was actually taking place, but things just kept creeping slowly higher and higher. And it goes to show you how much power and how much intent that central bankers and politicians have and just kicking the can down the road. I mean, now I saw some statistics today where the German Central Bank is responsible for roughly 26% of Spanish GDP and 19% of Spanish GDP right now. Wow, yeah. That's ridiculous when you think about printing money is doing in kicking the can down the road. And it says to me that corporations, that countries are gonna kick the can down the road until it absolutely can't last any longer. And it's just gonna be a really horrific event when things really do unravel and fall apart. You know, like Steve Keen was saying, there are solutions and there are ways to start looking at this in some ways 
doing a debt jubilee, but those kind of policy alternatives aren't going to come on the table until many years down the road when things are much worse off. And there's politicians who are coming to power who can actually talk about the ways that things really are instead of, for example, the political debates in the U.S. where it's just all about really off-base, ridiculous things that don't address structural economic problems. I don't think that we need to be necessarily obsessed about, you know, timing on how this economic unraveling is, is playing out because we know that the structural issues are there and we know what those structural issues mean. So there's no point in saying like, you know, in May, it's all going to unravel or in June, it's, it's all going to unravel. You know, it is unraveling slowly and slowly and there will be faster points and there will be slower points. You know, we know the structural issues are there. So why set specific dates on it? It's just going to keep happening. If there was one feature of humanity that I could change or one you know aspect of being human that I could change, that I see over and over again, all the guests that we talk to is this inability to see more than five years down the road, to see more than 10 years down the road, to not understand that by making our lives better in the short term, we are in fact making our lives so much harder in the long term. Our children and our grandchildren are gonna have to deal with some incredible, incredible problems that our generation will just never have to even think about. It's so mind boggling to me that people just can't see the fact that we're just screwing up the rest of humanity by doing the things that we're doing now, by making these incredible debts, by burning incredible amounts of resources and not thinking about the infrastructures of our cities for the future, just in creating incredible populations that just have gone out of control in huge ways. We just don't see these facts. We don't understand that we're going to have to pay one way or another, and it eventually it'll lead to a lot of hardship and tribulation and strife down the road. Whether you are an economist looking at government policy or if you are in a corporation, you're focused on the next quarter's profits and doing whatever it takes to make that next quarter something that meets or beats expectations. Or if you're in government, it's all about that next election cycle because you don't want to lose it. And corporations are extremely versatile in the ways that they can report earnings in, you know, laying off workers and signing them all on contracts and, you know, cutting benefits and just making life harder and harder on the people who work there. They're able to still increase their profits and show growth and continue pushing investors. So what's interesting is that economies are falling apart but financial markets are somewhat immune to it just because of all of these different ways of, of manipulation. But there's gonna be a point, and who knows when it happens, when it really does meet where financial markets do meet the fact that economies are unraveling. And you know we'll see what happens when it does. But um, another thing that Steve Keen talked about is he, he was mentioning this guy who was a, an economic minister in Australia who got up at dinner of economists and told negative jokes about economists. Can you believe that? Negative jokes about economists? No way. Yeah, can, can you believe that? It kind of reminds me of that time that we told all those jokes at that Federal Reserve meeting in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Oh yeah, do you remember that? <laughs> Thanks for having us uh, as the evening entertainment at your dinner here in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. It's Really great to address a group of the Federal Reserve uh, board members. I just got in last night to my hotel room here, and I was noticing that there there's no light in the room because all the light bulbs are gone. And I was wondering, you know, how many economists does it take to change a light bulb? And I realized that really it didn't take any because if the government just left it alone, it'd screw itself. 
Yeah, yeah. And I had this, this interesting situation happen to me. I was stra- uh, three people were stranded on a small island. One was a physicist, one was a circus strongman, one was an economist. After a few days of surviving on fruit, they discover a cache of canned fruit, and they had decided, they tried to decide how to open it. And the physicist says to the strongman, why don't you climb the tree and smash the cans down the rocks, and they burst them open. The strongman says, no, that would spatter the stuff all over. I can open the cans with my teeth. The economist says, first, we must assume that we have a can opener. I, then I realized that light bulb, actually the invisible hand of the market was going to screw it in. Hey, how many central bank economists does it take to screw in a light bulb? How many, Justin? Just one. He holds the light bulb up and the whole earth revolves around him. Hey, Seth, what does the fourth round of quantitative easing and a North Korean rocket launch have in common? What does it have in common, Justin? The rocket launch is going to last longer. Hello? Is this thing on? (laughs) Hello? Is anybody out there? Yeah, those were good times. Oh, man. Those people were rolling in the aisles. I remember that. Yeah. That was great. Do you think they're going to have us back next year, Justin? You know, I I was talking with uh, some of the coordinators, and they said that, that they would definitely pass on a positive recommendation for us were the, the North Korean Central Bank meeting, and they would be willing to fly us out there. They obviously think that we're worth their time. It's always good to be cherished and appreciated. Exactly. And speaking of being appreciated, we wanted to appreciate all of the people who have donated to the podcast. We're just overwhelmed with generosity, and we wish we could throw out an episode more often just to thank you guys for donating to the show. We're just going to go through some of the names here. Fergal from uh, Brighton, Massachusetts. Thanks for donating. Thomas from Fair Oaks, California. Thanks for your generosity. Kevin from San Diego, for all of his hard work in putting together our up-and-coming extra environmentalist t-shirts. Matt uh, in New York, uh, he sent us a message and a donation about uh, how he's been listening to us building yurts, and that's really awesome. Nancy from uh, Nova Scotia, thanks for your donation. Nathan from from Ontario, he, he donated on behalf of uh, also Aaron. So thanks, thanks so much to you guys. Travis from Germany sent us in a donation. We were really happy about that. Yeah, thanks to Adam from uh, Mercer Island, uh, Washington. So that's, uh, thank you so much for the donation. And uh, Terry from Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Eric from Washington, D.C., thanks for your donation. One of the cool things, uh, one of the cool things that Nathan mentioned when, when he donated was that they've been using some of our shows to inform some of the topics when he and some members of his community in Ontario get together and have a discussion session with their community members. And so it's great to know that we're able to bring some topics into those discussions where you can go and talk with your neighbors and go and talk with the people you live around about some of the topics that we're discussing with uh, people who are thinking about uh, sustainability and economic collapse and uh, economic transition issues. And so um, thanks for bringing those discussions in, Nathan, to your local conversations with all the people you live around. So that's really cool. We wanted to also thank Eric C. from Washington, D.C. And he wrote in to say that he wants to free the trolls, which, you know, we've been definitely abusing a lot lately. And um, yeah, thanks. Thanks for, for that, Eric. We will try not to be so mean to the trolls. Yeah, maybe. We'll, we'll see how that goes. Get back to work, trolls. Um, so we, we have a lot of great um, emails from listeners. We're going to be working some of those questions into a lot of the guests that we have lined up soon. So uh, stay tuned. Um, we're going to be getting to those. And so don't worry. You will be getting answers 
And feel, you know, feel free if you have just general questions about stuff we've talked about, you know, our views on different issues, send them in. Either Seth and I will address them as we're, we're talking at the end of each episode, or we'll work them into conversations with future guests. And we got a great voicemail about Thorium. That's going to be on an upcoming episode where we spoke with the author of a book called Green Illusions, uh, Ozzy Zayner, uh, about that. So thanks for the voicemail. Thanks to Matt for sending a voicemail. It, it got cut off in recording, so we're not going to play it here on the show, but thanks so much for, for calling in. Hi, my name's David. Just discovered your show a couple days ago. It's totally awesome. So amazing in this year of the apocalypse or whatnot to have found all these other people that have been thinking about these same things for longer than like the past 20 minutes. I guess I'm really interested in, you mentioned one of your shows that you're going to start talking about denial in some episodes and how that interacts with everything. It seems like this current of um, how do we communicate with an older generation, I'm 26, I've been talking to my parents for the past five years and they're finally starting to pay attention. Like, how does that happen? How does this process, like, move? It seems like this is happening with a lot of my other friends now, too, where things that were totally radical and extreme and there was no reason to think that way a couple years ago are now seeming much more reasonable in the, like, kind of farcical world we live in. But anyway, keep up the good work, and uh, I look forward to hearing more of your guys' interviews. It's kind of one of the reasons that we actually started the show is is communicating with people who are older than us. Justin and I are both in our 20s, and it's kind of difficult sometimes to be taken seriously when we're talking about things that are not really part of the mainstream. And it can be a little bit daunting to try to talk to your parents or your grandparents or somebody who's older than you, maybe your boss or someone like that. And that's why we bring on all these experts onto the show to try to, you know, get a little bit of perspective from experts who are of our parents and our grandparents and of our employer's generation so that we can have a little bit of leverage to try to explain these things. Yeah, absolutely. And I saw an interesting graph the other day that showed people who were over the age of 55 and the median net worth was over a few hundred thousand dollars. Whereas for people under 30, it was a few thousand dollars. That's a tremendous difference, an unbelievable difference. And it really does show that we live in completely different worlds in many ways because our parents' generation, they were able to buy property cheap and work hard and their home increased in value over time. And now for our generation, if we graduated from universities and we bought a house, well, the chance that it's worth more than at the time that we bought it is really low. At best, it's worth the same, and quite possibly, in many cases, it's worth less than if we bought it back in, say, 2008. In fact, I say in most cases, that would be this situation. Yeah, I was just going to say, not even quite possibly. In most cases, <laughs> yeah. that's the way it is. <laughs> yeah, so the generational divide on these issues is huge. The rules of the game back then were so completely different than how everything operates now for us. But really, it's about uh, redefining what it means to be successful and talking to the older generation about what they think is successful and trying to find a way to mesh those things, what we think is it means to be successful and what they think it means to be successful. So that's one way to start. Indeed it is. Yeah. And not to worry, we're going to be talking about denial soon in hitting on issues of the way our brains think and the way that denial works in the very near future in the next few months. Hey, Justin and Seth. My name is Thomas Dalton, or at least that's my pseudonym. After I made a modest donation, Justin very kindly wrote me a thank you email. I responded and we brought up the subject of fiction. I think that, when written well, fiction has a vital role to play in our discussion about economic collapse and environmental and societal change. 
When you read a good fiction story about future life after peak oil or radical climate change, it transforms those topics in your mind from some shapeless dread about, oh my god, everything I know is going to be gone, into a scenario where you say, I can survive that, I can plan for that, I can adapt. Even if, or especially if, you disagree with the predictions in the story, that still forces you to examine your own predictions in a much more concrete way, which again helps you prepare and start making plans in real life in the present. Fortunately, the collapse hasn't happened yet, so there's a ton of really good fiction in all sorts of moods and flavors available for free on the internet. So here's a long list of places to find tales of the apocalypse, which do not involve hordes of zombies or Mel Gibson driving around in leather pants. One of your repeat interview subjects, John Michael Greer, aka the Archdruid of North America, is in the middle of publishing a novel about the future, one chapter at a time, as a blog. It's called Star's Reach, and you can find it at starsreach.blogspot.com. Recently on his main blog, Mr. Greer ran a contest where his readers submitted short stories about life after peak oil. He picked his 12 favorites, and the anthology should be available for pre-order in a few months. Its working title is After Oil, SF Visions of a Post-Petroleum Future. My entry in that contest wasn't picked for the book, but of course I'm going to plug it anyway. It's the first few chapters of a graphic novel with artwork by my friend Justin, not the extra environmentalist Justin, another Justin, a story about a 40-year-old slacker who happens to look a bit like me, living in his mother's basement in Los Angeles during the unfolding economic collapse and societal apocalypse. Check it out at apocalypsemomcomic.blogspot.com. Since your listeners already listen to your podcast, they might like to hear podcast audio fiction as well. The first podcast I ever listened to is a sci-fi podcast called Escape Pod, and you can hear some end-of-the-world-as-we-know-it tales in episodes number 155, 268, 270, or 290. You guys often talk about debt and debt-based currency, so for an absolutely hilarious story about zombie bank debt, check out Pseudopod episode number 6. My favorite is a show called The Drabblecast at drabblecast.org. It doesn't fit into boundaries or categories, much like an extra environmentalist. Check out the host's musical version of the apocalypse by googling Norm Sherman Jesus Clones. Another fiction podcast I always check is called The Dune Steef at dunesteef.com, D-U-N-E-S-T-E-E-F. Search their site for a well-written post-apocalyptic tale in episode number 83. Another really sick, twisted version of the apocalypse appears in episode 21, but man, that one's not for the squeamish. So I don't want to detract from your audience here at The Extra Environmentalist, but you guys only put out an episode once a week at best. The other six days, maybe we can listen to some fiction. Thanks and keep up the good work, Seth and Justin. Yeah, so thanks for the voicemail, Thomas. And we are excited about the t-shirts that we mentioned before that your non-pseudonym self is sending our way. And once again, thanks for the donation. So yeah, it's been a while since our last episode, and that's because it has been a busy, busy month for us. Not only have we been work- working hard on recording future interviews for the show, but I was out on the East Coast for about a week and a half visiting Seth, going to New York City. I visited Olga and KMO of the Sea Realm podcast and was featured on episodes 304 and 305 of the Sea Realm. It's always great to hang out with KMO and to talk to him about so many of the most challenging issues of the day. And so you can hear some of my voice. If I haven't bored you already, you can definitely make sure that you get to sleep tonight if you listen to me talking on episodes 304 and 305. Justin, no one gets bored by listening to you. And actually, folks, Justin's picture appears on the cover art for episode 304 of the Sea Realm podcast. So 
you guys can not only hear Justin's lovely dulcet tones, but you can see his smiling bearded face on the cover art of that episode. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of embarrassing, but I'll go with it. Also, we had a listener write in from Chengdu, China and requested that I speak to the class from the extra environmentalist talking about different issues to a fourth grade elementary school class in Chengdu, China. And so uh, you heard them on one of the takeaways for this episode. And it was really great to speak to a fourth grade class with students from all around the world starting to think about environmental issues and ways that they can address them. So that was really cool. So thanks to Hayden and the fourth grade class at QSI International School in Chengdu, China. A little known fact about the extra environmentalists, not only do we do class lectures, but we do birthday parties, weddings, and you know, we can talk at a funeral or two if you need us to. I will definitely give the eulogy at any funeral you wish. And we will talk about uh, you know potential for green energy technologies based on crematoriums, and it'll just be the most comforting thing that you and your family have ever experienced. It'll make that that loved one's passing so much easier to handle. Exactly. With, with us there. So the Extra Environmentalist blog has been really taking off with amazing posts lately by our fantastic blog editor, Louisa. We have recently sponsored Louisa to go to a couple of talks while she's home visiting in the UK. You can find the blog at www.extraenvironmentalist.com slash blog, where there is a new redesigned, where there's a new redesigned header and soon to be redesigned blog format. So keep an eye out for that and go read all of our extra environmentalist blog posts that are coming out soon. Absolutely. A lot of you enjoyed having Luisa on the show to talk about woofing, and we're definitely going to have her on again in the future. That's right. She was a big time hit with her British accent, which is a lot better than my BBC accent that we heard at the beginning of this episode and uh, sounds a lot more interesting and doesn't make you want to die. I have a feeling that when we send this to the BBC, they're just going to reject it outright. Somebody has to have some standards around here, I suppose, and it certainly isn't me. So if you have not gotten enough of The Extra Environmentalist listening to this episode and you want to check out more episodes of The Extra Environmentalist or you want to find us on Facebook or Twitter, you can head on over to theextraenvironmentalist.com where we have all sorts of past episodes with show notes and music links and little write-ups about the shows and places where you can comment and all sorts of interesting other kinds of things. You can learn about The Extra Environmentalist. If you want to find us on Twitter, we are ExEnvironmental and we tweet a lot of stuff put out a lot of different links. Find us on Facebook at Extra Environmentalist. Just type it in there and we will pop up. I think we have, what, like 370 likes right now, Justin? Yeah, thanks to everyone for liking us on Facebook. We're throwing out uh, an article every day or a video or a picture or something, a piece of discussion, and a lot of you are weighing in and enjoying what we're having on there. So thanks to everyone who's interacting with us on Facebook and for tweeting at us. It's really great. It was also really great, as I mentioned before, to meet up with Steve in Washington, D.C., but I'm hitting the road again, and Seth is joining me this time, going to Montreal from May the 13th through the 19th for the first ever Degrowth Conference of the Americas, and a lot of amazing sustainability speakers and authors and people thinking about how to manage the economic contraction that we're actually experiencing will be there. If you're in that area, I recommend you go by the conference. If not, we're going to be doing a bit of coverage on it, so we'll have some stuff for you soon. Yeah, and if and if you're in Montreal and want to get together and talk about extra environmentalist-related topics, shoot us an email and let me know. Additionally, you can leave us a voicemail 
on our online voicemail. So you can leave it any time of night, any time in the morning, whenever you're feeling like talking to the Action Environmentalist. We are here, plus one, 919-701-9872. You can find us on Skype at Extra Environmentalist. You can post links to our shows, little short truncated links to our shows from our SoundCloud, which you can find the link to on our blog as well. You can write us an email at podcast at Extra Environmentalist. And of course, if you are totally moved by the show, you can send us some money at our donate button that is prominently located on the right column of our extraenvironmentalist.com website. Thanks again for hanging in there as we had a drought of episodes and we've got many more great, amazing interviews on the way. So uh, get ready for a great few months of the Extra Environmentalist, after which obviously the show will deteriorate and be horrible. Yeah, it's going to be horrible. Yeah. It's just gonna be awful. I, you know, after July, just don't even try. Don't yeah, it gets try. hot outside, and yeah, you know, who who really wants to be podcasting? The headphones in your ears, and it'll just be all sweaty, and it's yeah, it's gross. Yeah, it's horrible. But for the foreseeable future, you should have some good stuff. So yeah, tune in. And for the BBC, this is your extra environmentalist co-host Seth Mosekatz and Justin Ritchie signing off. Oh man, that's gonna get rejected outright. Yeah. The problem is, of course, political, and the problem is that there's no fair solution that everybody gains on. You can't grow yourself out of debt when you have a debt burden that is already at today's levels. Somebody has to lose, and uh, as you've seen in the United States, the banks have been uh, blocking a solution. Under today's conditions, at least in the United States, you're robbing uh, the 99% uh, to pay the 1%, as my friends on Occupy Wall Street put it, and uh, that's the political setting. And the problem is that uh, what you're seeing today and for the last 30 years has turned around and inverted the last eight centuries of legal and economic development in the West. Ever since the uh, schoolmen of the 13th century developed the theory of just price and value theory to ask what is a fair price for bankers to charge, and the answer was what is their cost of doing business, ever since that uh, the uh, laws have been more and more rewritten to favor the debtors. Uh, You don't have debtors prisons anymore. You have personal bankruptcy laws that free individuals from debt, that free corporations from debt. Uh, but the idea of, uh, bank, of clean slates has only recently been developed on an economy-wide scale. Uh, you had it, for instance, in the Brady Plan uh, for Latin American third world debt uh, in uh, uh, the 1980s after uh, Mexico said that it couldn't pay. But right now, there's enormous resistance to applying that kind of a write-down to today's situation.
The problem is that not having a debt write down means debt deflation, and the debt deflation means a shrinking uh, economy. And uh, if the economic structure is not changed, there's no way of getting out of the economic problem. And the problem is that it's, there's not only the real problem of the debt overhang that was mentioned, there's the problem of economic theory and the illusion that all debts can be paid. The illusion that banks lend customers only for projects that are going to enable the customers to uh, actually repay uh, the loans and the bankers make a calculation and calculate what the uh, customer can repay. But that's not what happens at all. Back in the 1960s, I was Chase Manhattan Bank's balance of payments analyst and my job was to focus on the Latin American countries, Argentina, Brazil, and Chile. And uh, my job was to calculate how much of a balance of payment surplus they could generate. And the idea of the bank marketing department was the entire economic surplus could be used to pay debt service to the uh, seven major uh, uh, American banks. And pretty quickly we found out that there wasn't any surplus to pay the banks. The international department head got very upset because he said, look, I get promoted for making loans and the real estate guy is making all the loans. You're telling us that they can't afford to repay. And he took it up to David Rockefeller. We went across the street to the Federal Reserve Bank and the Federal Reserve Bank said, it's, it's in America's interest to make these loans to Latin America. Uh, Mr. Hudson, according to your calculations, Britain can't afford to repay any more of its debt, can it? And I said, well, that's right. I don't see any way in which it can get the money to repay the debt. And uh, the Federal Reserve man said, ah, but did you take into account the fact that the U.S. Treasury is going to always lend Britain the money to pay? We will never let it go down. I said, well, that's from a deus ex machina, from outside the system. Uh, yes, you can lend them the money to repay. Since David Rockefeller was a very good American citizen, he believed in doing what the government wanted him to do and began to reloan to uh, Latin America. Joel Bakken. What fundamentalism try to do is they take one aspect of what we are as human beings and they say, okay, that's what we're going to build our society around. So the aspect of ourselves as human beings, as, as being self-interested, which we are, you know, that's part of who we are, uh, you know, enjoying consumption. I'm not going to dispute it. I like a good bottle of wine. So these aspects, you know, we're self-interested, we're consumers, um, are part of who we are. What neoliberalism does 
is it turns that into all of what the society is. So it takes this part and it, it builds a social and economic structure around those ideas of self-interest, of consumerism, of the freedom of markets, of no redistribution, of a purely formal equality, you know, treat everybody the same. If they fall through the cracks, that's their problem. So that makes sense to us at some level, which is why it has succeeded. But as you increasingly build your society around that one aspect of ourselves, all the other aspects of ourselves, you know, the side of us that's compassionate, the side of us that's altruistic, the side of us that feel that, that you know, looks at a homeless person and can't really buy into the notion that it's entirely that person's fault that they're on the street, that knows that that's wrong. So, so all of a sudden you start to have these contradictions. And so, and any fundamentalism, I mean, we're seeing it in terms of Islamic fundamentalism, in terms of the so-called Arab Spring. We, we saw it in the challenge to East Bloc communism. You know, all of these fundamentalism are ultimately unstable, and we see that they fail. And I don't think that neoliberalism is going to be the one exception in history. talking about oh doesn't look good already okay and now it's the world's most famous clown Ponzi the clown hey hey kids i'm riding in on my ponzi mobile and look at you little alice with your ponzi shirt and your ponzi shoes hey it looks like your shoes are disintegrating right on your feet where there used to be souls. That's how you know it's a Ponzi shoe. There's no soul. Wait, what is that? What is that that you hear? It's the mailman. That's right, folks. Let's hear what our viewers have to ask Ponzi. Hey, hey, let's see what our wonderful viewers have to ask me. Well, hello there, Mr. Mailman. What do we have in the mail today? Hi, Ponzi. Looks like today got a letter from Colin, Michigan. Eh, who knows where that is anyway? And who's the letter from? Well, looks like some sucker named Samuel. Wow, what what does the letter say? What does Samuel want to know from Ponzi? A hell of I know. Well, I'm going to read it. Dear Ponzi, my name is Sammy from Colon, Michigan. My dad lost his job a few years ago and unemployment just ran out. So when my brother broke his arm, I had to make a splint out of toothpicks and silly putty. Ponzi, how can you make silly putty that's edible and can you extract nutrients from rainwater to feed my starving family? Hey, that's a great question, Sammy. Let's see what we can do by looking through this giant book of central banker policies. Oh, it looks like there's nothing in there about making food from nothing. We'll just print some money to take care of that. Hey, mailman, do we have any other letters? We got a, we got a Frank Rexford from Newton, Kansas. Here you go. Dear Ponzi, my name is Frank, and I'm from Newton, Kansas. 
what's the best way to stockpile ammo so that way when my dad comes home drunk, he doesn't take it from me and use it in his guns when he shoots at the neighbors? Wow, Frank, great question. Let's look through this manual of central banker policies and see what we've got. Well, it looks like the only solution we can find here is just printing money. So we're gonna do that. Thanks, Frank. Well, guess what? A very special member of our audience today gets to play a very special game with Ponzi. Who's ready to play? Me! 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 Pick me! Pick me! Pick me! Pick me! I want to! I want to! Me! 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 Ponzi! Me! Well, we handed out numbers before the show when you walked in. And so we're going to call out a number of a very special child here today to go and play this special game. All right, let's see what number I've got in this hat. The number is seven. Lucky number seven. Who has number seven? It's me, Carolyn. Oh, Carolyn. Well, you are the lucky player of Ponzi's quantitative easer. You get to stand in this glass box and money will shoot out at you. You can grab as much money as we can print in 60 seconds. And then at the end, we'll tell you how much you got. Here we go. Step into the booth. Stop the printing presses. That's all the time we have for today, Carolyn. Let's see how much you have. Well, it looks like we just printed so much, it's not worth anything. So now all your money and everyone else's has no value. All right, one last game for today, kids. One of you I know is hungry here in this crowd, and we've got a special grand prize. So lucky number 72. Who has number 72? Oh, it looks like there's number 72. What's your name? Hi, I'm Jimmy. All right, Jimmy, step on down to get your shot at Grand Treasure Chest. Now spin this wheel and let's see how many times you get to reach in. All right, looks like you only get to reach in once. And that's great because we only have one type of prize. It's a can of beans that's been irradiated and it has fluoride for your teeth. So now you can take it home and feed your family. Announcer, tell him what else he wins. That's right, Ponzi. Not only does he win a can of irradiated beans, but he also gets a tour of a dilapidated, rundown Detroit car-making factory. Did you hear that, Jimmy? You get a tour of a factory. Well, well, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Great, isn't it? Tune in next time, as long as there's enough electricity to run your TV set. <laughs>